Hello, and welcome to the recording of the special Mythgard Academy class I did on the episode Blink from Doctor Who. Um, so, if you're listening to this recording, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is that uh, I was uh, juggling so many different things when I started uh, doing this episode live that I actually forgot to hit the record button, and so I missed the opening of that session. The good news, however, is that I did in fact notice this relatively quickly, so so all that we've missed in the recording is my snappy, witty uh, opening, which I don't think posterity will miss much, and uh, the very, very few opening remarks. I began this the whole class with, uh, you know, we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of clips, and I started with a clip just of the very beginning of the sequence, starting from Sally Sparrow going over the gate and up towards uh, the old deserted house. Um, so if you want to review that on your own, you can. Uh, the clip, the recording, picks up here in the middle of that clip, and the discussion follows that. And we now join the episode already in progress. So, uh, um, now, first of all, I, I, one thing I will say before we begin, I still don't know, and if anyone can explain this to me, I'd be grateful, I still don't know who threw the rock and why. I mean, we're led to believe that the angel threw the rock. I don't know why. The angels don't seem to be in the business of rock throwing. Um, so th that's just one question that I find myself still having, no matter how many times I've watched this episode. So, okay. Um, Gerald, it does sound like, and Neil was saying this as well, it, uh, it, it definitely starts off like a, a sort of a, a gothic horror movie. You think about the, the horror movie cues that we are being given, right? You've got the music, um, the, that, that sort of, cre the creepy violin music. Karita was talking about how much she loves the, uh, uh, the music in this episode. Um, you know, we've got the, the, the wrought iron gate, right? And the path, notice the lighting on the path, right? We've got that sort of like ghostly moonlight, right? Glistening on her hair and on the path leading up to the presumably haunted house, right? Very, kind of haunted house thing going on here. Um, she, there's this question, like, what is she doing? Who is this person? And what is this person doing? Of course, this looks like a person whom you would expect to have something jump out and kill her at any second. In fact, that is what I expected uh, when I first saw this episode, because, uh, you know, one thing, of course, which happens 
in many Doctor Who episodes is this the initial sequence before the opening credits roll. You know, there will be some kind of sequence which will set up the issue, you know, sort of the problem. And it's not uncommon to have a single person sort of scouting out and then get pounced on by some kind of monster. And then the credits roll. And, of course, we know that that's the issue of that, you know, monster or infestation or whatever it happens to be is going to be the issue that is going to be presented to the Doctor in this episode, right? So uh, it's set up like that and then again, in, in particular appealing to the sort of horror movie um, uh, 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 kind of cliches, right? You know, you have this attractive woman going by herself into a spooky house at night, right? We know what happens to attractive women in spooky houses in horror movies, right? You know, she's probably going to back through a door next, right? Um, and as I, as I mentioned in the, uh, you know, when we were, when we were going through it, I love the, the, the chandelier shot. Well, so, well, this is finally, now it's 45 seconds in, is when it's finally explained to us, in a sense, what exactly is going on here. Like, why is she here? What's she doing at all? She's taking pictures, right? Um, why? What is she interested in? Well, they seem to be, you know, she seems to be just taking pictures of, picturesque, gothic-like things, right? Again, I love this shot. It's one of those shots like, not under the chandelier! Like, like the chandelier is going to fall on her head. She's right under the chandelier. Uh, but no, 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 chandelier doesn't fall. Is there something, you know, she's sneaking around the corner, right, peeking through. What's in this room? Is it a... Oh, no, okay, it's fine. It's just a chandelier on the floor, right? So we get a lot of sort of build-up uh, and the increasing of particular expectations. But she's just, she's just taking pictures, right? It's perfectly calm. Right, just a just a just a woman in an abandoned house, taking scenic pictures of ivy growing down the 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 chimney. Right, um, uh, really really good. Um, yeah, Carita says the blonde pretty one always dies. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly the thing. Um, Emily Denny points out that there's even a danger keep out sign at the gate. Exactly, Emily. So there's that like, oh, but we should go ahead and go there anyway, because what's the worst that could happen, right? Exactly that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of, uh, that kind of atmosphere. Um, and then we have, wait, there's some kind of lettering behind the, the, the wallpaper. Um, oh, I'm being told, let's see, uh, Josh Ramsey says that the audio commentary says the angel threw the rock to try to knock her out so it could attack at its leisure. I find that answer disappointing, actually. Um, why on earth would the angel need to knock anyone unconscious? Uh, and, and what on earth is preventing the leisure of the, well, look how long she's standing here with her back to the, to the, to the window, right? Uh, surely the angel in the garden could have as much leisure as it could want. Um, so, uh, yeah, Karita also thinks it's a lame answer. I agree with you, Karita. We need a new one. So somebody come up with a better answer than that, um, because there should be one. So anyway, okay, so <clears throat> this is where things change, right? But they don't change instant. They, they change a couple times, right? Um, beware. Okay. Now, like, creepy, haunted, like, maybe, maybe now, maybe this is finally the manifestation that we've been looking for, right? As we get the beware sign behind the wallpaper, right? Oh, okay, so is this, like, the ghostly message or something that is supposed to, um, uh, the, 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 the ghostly message that's supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what, you, you know, warning her off maybe, or, you know, like the thing that's about to, like, and now something's gonna come up and pounce on her from behind? Right. Um, but uh, 
but again, then it, so again, that, that, the beware thing doesn't change things. Beware the weeping angel. Okay. Right. That's creepy. Right. So we're still, we're still in this spooky haunted house ghost mode. Oh, and duck. Okay. Right. So that's, we immediately shift down, right? Oh, and duck. That's not normally what's written behind the wallpaper, right? When you're, when you're revealing the spooky haunted message, beware the weeping angels. Oh, and duck. The, the, the comic element there would seem to sort of undermine the, um, the feel, right? The mood that we've been building here. Um, but it's not just destroyed the mood, right? Instead, it shifts it. Inste- that is, we've shifted from one kind of spooky to a different kind of spooky, right? That is, it was just a, this is a haunted house and she's sort of like uncovering the evidence of like, because somebody might, some like perhaps somebody who used to live here, like the house was haunted and they went insane and the insane former habit inhabitant of the house scrawled, beware the weeping angel on the wall. And then somebody like presumably somebody who is trying fruitlessly to sell the house after the former inhabitant went mad. Um, uh, and kill themselves or something. Uh, wallpaper over it, right? So beware, the weeping angel is still there. And so she's, and uh, you know, it, this could work, right? It's po- totally fine gothic horror stuff, but not O oh, and duck, right? But again, it's a different kind of creepy now. Now instead of just ghost story kind of creepy, it's like and duck. You know, this the question, the question which she, which Sally is obviously asking, right? Um, when we okay, we haven't seen her face yet. Okay, right. And then she's really duck. Then she reveals her name, right? Um, so there's a question like, what, what, who wrote this? Why would this person be writing duck? No, really duck on the wall, right? So it, 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 at first it seems merely to undermine the sort of mood. Then when she reveals her name, it sort of, sh- it, it, it's not, in fact, unspooky. It's just modulating the spooky, right? To a whole new register of spooky. This is not a haunted house, right? There's not creepy ghosts in here. Um, her own name is written behind the wallpaper of this old, decrepit house, right? And we see, of course, her being extremely staggered and backing up, right? As she is overwhelmed with the creepiness of this, right? Um, and Jeannie Minnick says, it always surprises me uh, just how long it takes for her to duck, considering the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. Um, now, I like that theory, by the way. There are a couple people. Uh, Josh, Sarah Powell, uh, Carita, who are all suggesting that um, a better explanation would be that the doctor, either himself or by proxy, arranged later on for a for a rock to be hucked through the window at this particular time. Uh, that actually works better for me. I mean, you could ask why wouldn't the doctor just talk to her himself if he's right there out the window? Um, but of course, that's a question to be asked anyhow. But anyhow, so, all right, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Um, 
the doctor throwing the rock, I actually find much more satisfying than the angel throwing the rock. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay, alright, so, she reveals her name, and again, as I said, this, it, 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 it modulates it to a different kind of spookiness. A shift to something really fantastic, I would say. That is to say, the house may or may not be haunted, right? There might just be, you know, a knife-wheeling uh, murderer or something, right? It could be that kind of horror movie. We don't really know. The fact that her own name is written behind this old uh, 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 wallpaper shows there is something genuinely bizarre, something genuinely fantastic uh, going on here. Um, combined with the command... So, again, as I said, Duck seemed to really change it from spooky to comical. But then when The Rock actually comes in, it sort of fully reinstates the spooky, right? Because now even the prosaic stuff, duck, no, really, duck, shows that it's timed for that particular moment, that whoever wrote this on the wall not only knew her name, but knew that a rock was going to be hucked in her head at this particular moment, and just as she was peeling off the wallpaper. Um... That is, uh, that's remarkable. Yeah, exactly. Caden, I was thinking the same thing. Caden suggests he would throw the rock in order to prove to her that the message is for her, that the message is real. Totally, Caden. That is like 50 times more convincing than the idea of the angel throwing the rock. Totally. The question is, I guess the doctor could arrange, like if uh, Martha Jones is there watching his back or something, like if she's watching the angel the whole time, uh, to make sure that the angel doesn't take him from behind uh, while he's chucking the rock. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's totally uh, um, that's 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 a way better explanation. Um, so she looks at the rock, looks out and sees the weeping angel, right? Now she's thinking, like, weeping angel, I just read that on the wall, right? And now again, sort of the not the genre changes exactly, but the tone changes. Love from the Doctor, 1969, right? Now now this is a letter on the wall <laughs> to her, right? I mean, you know, he's, he's signing off, you know, with love from the Doctor, uh, which uh, to me seems... Um, uh, <laughs> Sarah Powell says, what would Boethius say? And Kevin, I agree it's very elaborate, but you know, like... The rock is there. It needs to be explained. I didn't. I'd have. I'd have done without the rock myself. Um, ah, Josh Ramsey, I think, has the best solution of all. It's actually Clara who throws the rock. Um, she has just sort of wandered through here, and she's thrown the rock. That I think makes perfect sense. Um, anyway, anyway, okay. Um, so, okay, one of the things that I that I just love uh, the way that it the way that they do it the way that the the, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this, Stephen Moffat is given, the, is credited with this episode. I hate just saying they, vaguely. Um, I don't want to, I know that Stephen Moffat is part of a team who's writing this, but I'm just going to say, um, I'm just going to, to, to say Moffat as if he is the sole author of this. Understand that I am doing that only as a convention, but it's easier. It will make it easier for me to talk about over the course of the class. So anyway, okay. 
Um, I love the way that Moffat sort of modulates back and forth. Um, the way that he affects the change in tone and our own uncertainty about what's going on. This is a genuinely perplexing thing, not just because it's a mystery, right? There's still sort of the paranormal mystery that Sally Sparrow is left with at the end of this first scene. How did my name get written behind and who was telling me to duck just in time to actually duck in real time? Those, those questions still remain. But the way in which Moffat is messing with our own expectations and our own reception of this, right? So that it's a little bit hard for us to know exactly where we are and what we're supposed to be, um, what we're supposed to be expecting. Um, and I think that's, um, I think that's, that's pretty cool. But okay, so, okay, so that's enough for that one. But this is not the end. This is not that is this is not the end of Moffat messing with us as far as the genre of this episode, right? She goes over to her friend Kathy's house and gets Kathy. She and Kathy come back and they're going to be girl detectives, right? So this is uh, uh, this is yet another genre that we're entering. Okay, oh, so this is like a this is a girl detective show, right? Sparrow and Nightingale. Okay, all right, all right, yeah, that, that that's what it is, right? But then we get this: the doorbell rings. I love the silhouette, right? You know, it's like, okay, oh wait, are we back in, are we back in Psycho? Okay, right? What's, <laughs> who's the creepy guy with the silhouette at the door, right? With Kathy's face there, looking from the background. I'm looking for Sally Sparrow. How does she know I've been here? I was told to bring this letter on this date at this exact time to Sally Sparrow. That's old. It is old. Okay. Um, my favorite moment... Uh, sorry, here we are. My favorite moment in this... Why am I not able to do my thing here? Oh, because I'm at the end. All right. My favorite moment in this clip is this moment here, right? So we've got this dude in a suit, right? Creepy guy in suit who shows up at the door looking like that, right? With this, like, suspicious, paranoid look. And she's like, whoa, right? Who's the dude in the suit? And he's like, I am looking for Sally Sparrow. It's like, what are we in the end? What, what is this? The X-Files or something? Right? We've got like creepy dudes in suits showing up who know things that they're not supposed to know. Like, how did you know I was here? Right? Nobody knows that I'm here. Uh, and then he reaches into his pocket like this and she backs up. Like, is he going to shoot me? Right? The, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a bunch of different ways that this could go. And I love the way that... So Sally, of course, is being kind of kept guessing, right? She doesn't really know what's happening. Um, but it's not just that she doesn't know what's happening. She doesn't know what kind of story she is in. And we don't exactly know what kind of story she's in. Gerald Michael is surprised that the doorbell works. Yeah. I agree. Oh, and Carita, I agree. I love the line later on, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, when, when Lawrence, that's the name of the, of Kathy's brother, right? When Lawrence shows up at the house and says, you live in Scooby-Doo's house, right? Scooby-Doo, right? See, that's this, the genre thing. It's to, the Scooby-Doo is totally the genre of that, of the beginning part of that opening sequence. Um, and, um, anyway, so, but, but here it's like, again, what kind of thing? She doesn't know. 
Is this a government dude? Is this what's you know? Uh, uh, is this a hitman? Is this a, a, a is this a sexual predator? I mean, it could be anything, really. Um, and instead, he's presenting her with this aged envelope um, with uh, you know sort of old fashioned script on it that says her name, right? Um, uh, it's um, yeah. It, it, Karita said, uh, his eyes are so wide, I expected him to be a creepy alien and killer. Yeah, but what could be, what could be more likely? Um, okay, so, but there's still more. Sally is still uncertain about what kind of story she's in, and she, she, uh, soon after this, um, that is, once she figures out, um, you know, he's just, he, he said Kathy's name, and she's been looking around for Kathy, right? And Kathy's not there. Um, so she has one more theory about what's going on here. Who are you? Why are you here? I made a promise. Who to? My grandmother, Catherine Costello Nightingale. Don't have that in London. There's no call for it. It's all Hull. 1920? Your grandmother? Yes. She died 20 years ago. So they're related. Sorry? My Kathy, your grandmother, they're, they're practically identical. Where are you going? My dearest Sally Sparrow, if my grandson has done as he promises he will, then as you read these words, it has been mere minutes since we last spoke. For you. For me, it has been over 60 years. The third of the photographs is of my children. The youngest is Sally. I named her after you, of course. Here comes the theory. This is sick. This is totally sick. No! <laughs> All right. Um, so we have the genre, right? Her new genre, right? Her new theory, briefly, about what's going on here. Right? Okay, it's not a it's not a ghost story. It's not a government conspiracy thing. It's not a mob story. He's, this isn't a hitman. Um, he's not a sexual predator. 
Uh, no, this is a joke. This is a bit, and it's probably Kathy's fault. For some reason, Kathy Nightingale has arranged this whole elaborate thing where she, like, had pictures of herself, like, aged, you know, she probably went to one of those dress-up places, right, and had, had all these elaborate pictures and wrote this whole letter and hired this guy to come, and now she's hiding somewhere, right? And probably there's, like, a hidden camera or something like that, and, um... Uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, so that this, anyway, this, that, that it, when, 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 uh, when Sally says this is sick, that seems to be her theory, right? Um, so uh, 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 this is, and that's a, a, a sort of a laudable attempt to make sense of what she's seeing. Of course, and I love the way that we are being shown non-verbally, right? The juxtaposition between what's going on with Sally and what's going on with Kathy, um, that I, it's, this is that, that was the moment I remember when this episode really kind of blew my mind. Uh, you know, the idea that just at the moment that Kathy disappears in the other room is the moment that it is revealed that the guy who just came to the door is her grandson, right? So good. So well done. Um, and again, we can see it, right? Notice the, the way in which Moffat has, introduced that distinction between our understanding, our comprehension of things, and Sally's comprehension of things, right? Since we are being shown Kathy in Hull in 1920, we understand what happened. Sally has no idea. As far as she knows, Kathy is hiding. She was just in the next room. She can't have run off. Either she's run away for some reason, or she's hiding, and in either case, um, it suggests that she's complicit with this, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, and Penny, you're right, it is interesting that we're so far into the episode and the Doctor hasn't yet appeared. Um, absolutely, absolutely. The, uh, the uh, absence of the Doctor, of course, is very noteworthy uh, in, this, uh, in this episode. Um, okay, so now uh, uh, Jeannie's asking, how did uh, she not die at this part? Um, it seemed like the angels were not in a particular hurry uh, to get her here. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, Christy, uh, Camino is thinking, uh, and tell me if I'm mispronouncing your name, by the way, um, is, uh, it was, I think, is, is it, uh, uh, Christy, the photographs that were making you think of Back to the Future, right? Yeah, I, I, that certainly made me think of Back to the Future. Um, and, um, of course, uh, and, and how timely, right? Yesterday, of course, was Back to the Future Day. October 21st, 2015 is one of the dates on the screen, right? In the DeLorean. Anyhow, um, But what I love most here, she, so we've, this scene that I just gave, this clip that I just showed has two halves, right? On the one hand, she's down, you know, the downstairs part where she's talking with the guy whose eyes are too large, right? Um, saying this is, you know, she's convinced that he is an actor, part of a sick joke that's being perpetrated against her. She is being toyed with and manipulated, and she does not appreciate it, right? And she throws the stuff down to the ground, and she runs upstairs, trying to catch Kathy, who's doubtless hiding and laughing somewhere, or maybe the camera crew, who is probably filming this thing, or something like that, right? And, uh, she gets upstairs and finds the four angels waiting for her, well, three of them anyway, um, holding the key. And it seems to me that... The, again, I love the um, I love the transition 
Right, that is the transition between her downstairs believing she's being manipulated by her friend and then going upstairs where it seems she is actually going to be uh she is actually going to be manipulated uh by the angels. It is well not a twisted joke, right? Um uh but there is something somewhat sick and manipulative going on here. Um but it's nothing like the kind of thing that she thinks. Rachel, that was my thought too. Rachel Draper suggests that if she's holding the when she's holding the key, the angels might be hesitant uh, to send her into the past. Um, yes, yes, and I'm actually suspecting that she comes up and finds the key in the hand of the angel because she's meant to find it. I think she's meant to take the key. Um, Obviously, any of them, knowing how fast, as we learn later on, how fast they can move, you know, as she's standing here, the one that's right over her right-hand shoulder could have gotten her at any second, right? So it's pretty clear that um, that that's not uh, their plan here. Um, they do seem to have an additional plan, right? Um, more than just getting Sally Sparrow. Um, they're going to be doing something else uh, to her and with her. Um, and again, there's just, it's, I think it might be my favorite spooky moment in the entire, uh, in the entire episode. The change of the shadows on the back of Sally's head right there. As we can see, you know, because we never, of course, see the angels moving, but seeing the shadow move where we know the angel is standing behind her. My favorite, my favorite point. Okay, so there are people lying in wait for her that she is being set up, but not by Kathy, right? Not by her friend. Finally, once she goes downstairs, she reclaims the letter. Uh, She finally makes peace with the fact of what this story is, right? This is not Scooby-Doo. This is not a ghost story. This is not the X-Files. This is not some kind of candid camera. This is a time travel story, somehow. I suppose, unless I live to a really exceptional old age, I would be long gone as you read this. Don't feel sorry for me. I have led a good and full life. I've loved a good man and been well-loved in return. You would have liked Ben. He was the very first person I met in 1920. Are you following me? Yeah. You going to stop following me? No, I don't think so. It's a great line. To take one breath in 2007 and the next in 1920 is a strange way to start a new life. But a new life is exactly what I've always wanted. 1902. Told him you were 18, you lying cow. And that's the moment. The lying cow moment uh, seems to be the one where Sally finally sort of makes peace with what's happening, right? Um, Where she seems to have completely accepted. We see her sort of, in this sense, as she's looking at the tombstone of her friend, right? Of her close friend, um, who... uh, died at the age of, well, not 
85, apparently somewhat north of 85 in reality. Um, but she's looking at, uh, at the, at the gravestone of her, of her now aged and long dead friend, who's been dead for 30 years. Um, we, uh, or sorry, 20 years. She's, who's been dead for 20 years. Um, she, this, you know, we see her kind of resume her relationship with Kathy on sort of the same kind of footing, you know, talking to Kathy like she would have spoken to Kathy um, back when she knew her before. So we see, you know, okay, so the relationship between Kathy and Sparrow has been healed, though Kathy's dead, but, um, and and so we're now clear on what's happening. Sparrow is clear on what's happening. We're clear on what's happening. Finally, we know um, at this point in the show, that's now like a third of the way through the show, um, but anyway, we are now clear on what kind of story this is right um but there's still you know the the fact that this is a time travel thing and what we see going on here um the the sequence of cause and effect is still really fascinating right i mean again as i described that moment um when kathy vanishes right before kathy vanishes um when she's hiding around the kathy is hiding around the corner because she doesn't want to be seen by the guy at the door uh, who turns out, of course, to be her own grandson. Uh, here's that scene. What you hear her grandson saying there in the background very faintly is, it's all rather complicated. so hard to tell with these old photographs, of course, he says. Well, here goes, I suppose. Funny feeling after all these years. Who's it from? Well, that's a long story, actually. Give me a name. Catherine Wainwright. But she specified I should tell you that prior to marriage... She was called Kathy Nightingale. And that's the moment when Kathy Nightingale disappears as soon as her name is is uttered. Again, we have, as soon as we discover that this is a time travel situation, right, um, that the reason for the spookiness, um, uh, you know, we're now beginning to say, okay, so it's not ghosts, right? It's not ghosts. It's okay. Well, I was about to say it's not monsters. Kind of is monsters, but anyway, um, you know, the weeping angels. We had that introduced to us at the beginning. Um, but this is this is the 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 issue. The the cause of the spookiness is time travel. We immediately are confronted with issues of 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 sequence, right? Issues of time with timey wimey issues, right? Um, how is it possible that the guy at the door? could possibly be the, you know, how is it that Kathy could have sent after her death? It was just the way that that sequence works. And of course, you'll notice um, that Kathy's hiding off to the side turns out to be somewhat fortuitous as she avoids a paradox of meeting her own grandson who would presumably recognize her. She looks just, I mean, he's had that old family picture that he's giving uh, to Sally here, right? Um, so, um, 
anyway, yeah. So this is uh, uh, the, the the first time we see this kind of paradox, right? But of course, it's not um, it's not the only moment of that kind of paradox that we see during the episode. Let's look at the let's look at the the next one where something very much like this happens, where no time at all. Those two things are right back to back for Sally, but less so for others. She just gave this guy her phone number, right? Just like three minutes ago. from this episode that totally gives me chills. It's the same rain. It was raining when we met, he says, thinking back through the mists of time 38 years ago when he first met Sally Sparrow. And he says, it was raining when we met, right? You know, he, you know, it, sort of implying, I remember it like yesterday, right? And her response is, I remember it like it was five minutes ago <laughs> because it was five minutes ago. It's the same rain. Um, this kind of paradox, the way in which people's timelines are juxtaposed against each other. Again, it's now clear. This is the kind of mystery that we're in. Um, I want to shift to be thinking about that mystery. How does, how does that mystery get worked out? Um, what is the mystery of the Doctor? We'll look at the DVD clips and stuff and the way that this gets set up. Now, of course, my point, I know you've all, at least I trust you've all seen the episode and that I'm not spoiling it, um, but uh, but I want to be looking at how this stuff gets revealed to us, because I think that the way it gets done, this is just a remarkably well-structured episode, and the way that things get revealed are so cool. Um, so I want to be looking at that and how um, how the mystery is laid out for us, and what are some of the kinds of impressions that it gives us, even the things that don't turn out to be true. How does this sort of all work? Um, so I want to... Um, uh, I want to do that, but I also want to uh, pause uh, for a minute here, um, and I want to bring in uh, my partner in crime. The first a flesh break. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to be a disembodied voice. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, hello. I um, I love that. You know, actually, I remember back when I first saw this episode. The first time I saw this episode, that whole gothic start of this. I mean, I almost didn't watch it because it was like, oh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's going to be one of those like Doctor Who. It's going to work out okay. Yeah, exactly. It it's going like, to be one of those people jumping out of uh, corridors yeah. and around corners. And of actually, people, yeah. I mean, if I'd been much younger, like. You know, maybe a couple of years younger. Those, those angels probably would have given me some serious nightmares. <laughs> anyway, they're uh, ex- an extremely you know, creepy villain. Yes, very, very. Um, I well, first of all, Mister Money Man, you know where we stand in terms of our um, our uh, fundraising goal. Where, where are we? Today? I do. We have 
crossed just in the last two days. Uh, we have we have crossed over our goal. We are we are above twenty thousand now. Um, our the, first goal. <laughs> our first goal, right? The first threshold. Uh, the uh, the 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 total in gifts and pledges for the annual fund is twenty thousand seven hundred and eleven so far today. So that is great. Yeah. that is great. That's yeah. awesome. And uh, and we're almost. I I. I I prematurely announced the chicken uh, goal had been met, but we're almost there, right? Actually, we have now. We've crossed over the we chicken goal. We have now? Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. We crossed over the chicken yep. goal. Okay. So any of you that don't know what the chicken goal is, what this is about <laughs> is... It might sound a little peculiar. Online, I know. Uh, it's it's called Taking the Token Professor to Helm's Deep as a Chicken. And um, we must say that the folks at Turbine who created Lord of the Rings Online have an interesting sense of humor. Yeah. Um, so there is actually a part of the game where you get to become a chicken and you do quests as a chicken. Um, but then you also can actually run around Middle Earth as much as you want as a chicken. The only problem is you're like, you have like no defenses at all. So anything could get you. Um, so what we're going to do is we are going to create a very strategic uh, posse for Corey and he's going to become a chicken and we are going to, at this point, run him to Helm's Deep. Although Josh Ramsey suggested at one point, if we need a stretch goal, why not Ammon Hen? <laughs> Which seems like <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate destination for for the chicken quest. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Seems like the ultimate. The thing about this particular thing is, is you don't have to be a larger player to, to, to enjoy it. Because, first of all, we're going to... Stream it on our Twitch channel, which so it's a streaming TV channel, and it'll be like later in November, early December, and you can just watch it. You don't have to, you know, like be a player. <laughs> yes. And I promise you, even if you're not a player, this is going to be fun. So that one's <laughs> yeah, I, it's I'm 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 excited because I'm going to be actually going across parts of Middle Earth I've never even been to in the game before. So I will well, first see be... them through the eyes of a chicken. That that will be. You you have heard the term herding chicken. <laughs> so this is what this is going to be, especially when you get to the new areas, you know. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I'm looking at the list at the folks that are here tonight, and, and I think, Corey, unless, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but so many of the folks that are here are, are already donors and have already yes. been participating. And so yes. You're very well aware of what's going on. Um, but I do want to encourage you to spread the word. You know, we do have some more things going on as far as this fundraiser event, and we have the webathon going on on October 31st, and the schedule for that's going to go up soon. We have some really fun events going on uh, then, um, and you know, spread the word to folks. Have them come, you know, watch the webathon, and let us let us do the hard part of getting them to, you know, donate some money. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to remind you that on the um, signumuniversity.org uh, backslash fund page, F-U-N-D page, there is the annual fund donor levels. So, you know, you could get a friend of yours, say to a friend of yours, haven't you always wanted to be a voluntary assistant postman? It will only cost you $25. Um, and, you know, on up from there, you could be a counselor, you could be a bounder, you could be a ranger, you could go on up and be a gardener if they have that much money. Um, so to this group, rather than sit here and, like, you know, say, oh, donate, because you guys have been donating your hearts out, which is just wonderful. I just wanted to invite you to go like to the next ring and maybe you know see if you can get some folks to come to some of these events. And, and we figure these free events that we give during the fundraiser are are a great great intro to Mythgard. Mm -hmm. And you know we've got the four programs. We've got Mythgard Academy, which is what tonight's about. We've got the Film Film Project. We have another session tomorrow morning on the Film Film Project. We have Lord of the Rings Online, and we've got the guest lecture series. So it's kind of like we we cover. A 
pretty wide swath in terms of interests for people. So, you know, I, w- I just want to encourage you to have uh, your friends and associates uh, come join us for these freebies. We will be doing things through the year, but this 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 fundraiser is really the most concentrated of all the of all the things we're going to be doing. You know, I'm going to wait in until like maybe the half uh, halfway point for our drawing, so that we just make yes. sure nobody leaves, just in case. Yes, you know, we, 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 we do have a drawing. You do need need to be here and right. it's all Doctor Who related choices for presents for presents for prizes so that's right yes that's right tax exempt corporate matching Susan Cormier is so great <laughs> that's right yes. exactly yes that's uh, right. Signum University is in fact a tax exempt corporation yep totally tax deductible and um, anybody who's in a corporation who has matching programs uh, you know this we qualify for that so yeah, if your corporation get in touch. we can work it out Absolutely. Yeah. So that's my spiel, sir. Yeah, excellent. No, it is, you know, it is good. And it's something, you know, I've always, uh, I know that I personally have always kind of felt shy to ask people for donations, but I, I really don't in this case. I mean, this is the way that... I chose to do these things from the beginning. You know, uh, there have been a lot of people who have told me over the years since I started my podcast, you really should stop giving away so much stuff for free. I mean, you give away hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of content for nothing. You should charge something for it. And I always said, no, no, I, I really don't want to do that. And, you know, what, what I want to do, uh, you know, what I, what I love for Mythgard to be able to do is to give open access to all these things. So we'll do the Mythgard Academy classes and we'll have, as we now have, hundreds of hours of free classes on books that people love and, and you know, voted for, you know, us to, to do a class. So, you know, people wanted to do Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which we're in the middle of right now. And so we're doing, a you know, like a 12-week class on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, the book plus the miniseries. Um, so that's, you know, it's like... It's going to be probably end up being what like twenty five hours or something worth of class content on that book that so many people have been enjoying. Um, we don't you know charge anything for that, and we have it open and available for everybody to download, and it will be forever. You know, any, at any time anybody wants to watch it, we do that. And you know, but of course these things aren't. It's not actually free to do. So um, you know, we I, I therefore have no uh, uh, no hesitation about asking people to you know, say, if you enjoy the free stuff that we do and you support this kind of thing, you know, we would really, really love and appreciate your support. And as That's a P- you just yeah. you just sound like you were on PBS. That was a PBS thing. And well, you could have just literally taken that off of their got they, they, <laughs> I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Yeah, PBS does it right. <laughs> they absolutely do it right. I mean that's it's absolutely Yeah. So Well yeah. and you know the thing is I've been around you know, I pr- I'm one of the like oldest besides Corey, probably one of the oldest people around here. I mean, in terms of Mythgard, probably the other way too. But but Mythgard stuff, and you know, so I've seen a lot. And the truth is, you know, we talk about oh, your donations allow us to do this, and you know, sometimes when I hear organizations say that, I think oh yeah, they're just trying. They would do them anyway, you know, right. even if they didn't get my money. Maybe that's true, but I got to tell you. We would not be able to do as high quality and as a wide range of free programs if y'all weren't so generous. Uh, really, we maybe would have one program, you know. But to be able to have like these four programs that really kind of span a really wide array of of, of interests is just really wonderful. And and I know for a fact it comes directly from you guys. So yeah, you know, someday we'll have one of those, and from viewers like you up on the screen, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, 
Yeah. So yeah. so yeah. So so the message for tonight, with all of you old timers and wonderful supporters, is you know spread the word. Mm-hmm. I know you do. I know that you share with folks, and I just wanted to encourage you to do that. And, and um, we're, I, right now the uh, the thirty first webathon, that's going to be ha- the Halloween webathon we're going to be having, which is the uh, wind up for this fundraiser. Uh, right now, tentative start time is ten a.m. And who knows how long we'll go because the final epi- the final uh, installment is is a film film discussion. So you know that could go for <laughs> for a long time, especially since it's on our fantasy casting. Um, but we'll have um, Sparrow Alden and Dave Kale and Corey are going to do. Gosh, Corey, I don't even know how to how to describe it. But it's fun and games with uh, with uh, with with Hobbit analytics. We're going to be doing. You know, of course, as many of you have heard, Sparrow did her thesis uh, for Signum University on on the Hobbit and the uh, Tolkien's style and word choice in the Hobbit. And uh, she's been using Michael Drought's analytics uh, software, his Lexomics stuff, uh, to analyze the uh, the Hobbit. So she and uh, Dave Kale are going to be talking about the application of this kind of stuff and how this works and what this looks like with Tolkien. We're going to be playing lots of fun games um, where uh, we'll sort of put up a chart and we'll both think about what it means and, and see if you can guess what words it's searching for and everything. It, it, it'll be a, 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 a bunch of really fun interactive riddles and things we're going to be doing too. So it should be a great time. Yeah, and then um, after that, right after that, Corey is going to be doing a, a, a session like this on Tolkien's Father Christmas Letters, which That's should right. be a lot of fun. That should be a lot of fun. And then after that, we will have um, uh, Dr. Dimitra Femi, who many of you may know. She's a she's a, a fantasy literature scholar um, from over in Wales, and a, a great uh, she's a faculty member here and a great supporter of the guard. Is going to be talking about fantasy literature as it relates to Halloween. Actually, not fan- just literature as it relates to Halloween, with some very surprising titles. So that's going to be really good. And then yeah. right after that comes Where is Wigan, our Lotro section, and again, that you can watch, if you're even if you're not a player, where Corey's uh, uh, character, Wigan, is going to be going to brand new places that he's never been before. And we will probably watch him die a few times. Hopefully <laughs> not. Hopefully he'll have a posse that will keep him alive, yeah, but it could fine. happen. So he's going to get to go to places he has not seen yet, which is going to be really exciting. And, and yes, he will be looking at architecture, I'm sure. And then final, the final uh, installment will be our sim film with Dave and Corey and I doing um, the with you guys, you know, coming up with our fantasy casting. Which should be a lot of fun. I mean, we've already got you know some controversy over Vin Diesel, who he should be playing. So um, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about that. Um, anyway, so that's it. I, 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 you know, I have nothing to say on the other pleasure breaks, but it's okay. Um, tell your friends. You know, if you feel like part with a few more quarters, we are we would be happy to have them. And get, let's get on with the Weeping Angels. All right. Okay. Let's get back and actually talk about the Doctor. That would be good. Um, so, let's see where we're... Oh, yeah, that's right. We were on clip number seven. That's where we were. So, okay. The, of course, the centerpiece of this episode, having established what kind of story we're talking about now, what exactly is the story? What is the heart of this story? And it's a mystery story, right? Who is this doctor person and what's going on? I love the way we're introduced to the doctor in this episode uh, through what uh, what Sally keeps seeing on screens uh, as she's... Um, as she's as she's walking around and you know when we first see the doctor it's just it's we see him on the screen and he's saying these strange disjointed things right oh sorry hang on a second we need audio i'm switching my audio from like one thing to another here sorry my apologies okay we'll come in again 
quite possibly. Rain snow. Oh. Hello. Count me. Hi. Thirty-eight. Just a moment. Thirty-eight. How random is that? Right. Um. <laughs> Josh Ramsey says it's not so strange for the doctor. Uh, you know, I, agreed. If he, if there's anybody that you would see on a video saying odd, disjointed things like that, it wouldn't perhaps surprise. This behavior in him doesn't perhaps surprise you, but it's still difficult to understand, right? So we see him saying these random, uh, disjointed words. Um, that's the setup that we get. This is the second time that she's seen him on a screen, um, saying this kind of thing, saying stuff like this, right? Um, and then finally we get an explanation of what exactly this is. What is this? Who is he? An Easter egg. Excuse me? Like a DVD extra, yeah? You know how on DVDs they put extras, you know, documentaries and stuff? Well, sometimes they put on hidden ones and they call them Easter eggs. You have to go looking for them, follow a bunch of clues in the menu screen. Complicated. Sorry. It's interesting, actually. He is on 17 different DVDs. There are 17 totally unrelated DVDs all with him on. Always hidden away, always a secret. Not even the publishers know how we got there. I've talked to the manufacturers, right? They don't even know. He's like, he's a ghost DVD extra. Just shows up where he's not supposed so to be. he's a ghost. But only on those. Those 17. Well, what does he do? Just sits there, making random remarks. It's like we're hearing half a conversation. Me and the guy's always trying to work out the other half. When you say you and the guys, you mean the internet, don't you? How do you know? Spooky, isn't it? Very complicated. Florence, need you! Excuse me a sec. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It started well, that sentence. It got away from me, yeah. Okay, that was weird. Like, you can hear me. Well, I can hear you. Okay, that's enough. I've had enough now. I've had a long day and I've had bloody enough. I love the look on his face. And by the way, uh, was everybody else as amused as I was that his name is Lawrence Nightingale? Right. But anyway, um, okay. Notice what happens over the course of that, right? He's the ghost DVD extra on these 17 totally random DVDs, right? But the really cool thing is the way that his, his apparently completely disjointed remarks end up getting worked into the conversation, right? Complicated, he says after, you know, so that uh, uh, Lawrence has just been explaining about how the Easter egg thing works. Complicated, right? And then they come to the end. Very complicated, he says. Right? And then he seems to be responding to her, leading to that extremely creepy moment, that moment which is as spooky as when she pulls the the wallpaper aside to reveal her own name, when he looks at her straight in the eyes and says, I can hear you. Right? Um, really, really... Uh, Really, really, uh, really creepy. Yeah, exactly. Caden is pointing out how the complicated and very complicated makes it almost sound like he's responding to Sally and Lawrence there. Absolutely. So the question, which we can't help but ask, right? I mean, what what's happening here? How is this possible? Is is he able to understand her? Can he hear what's going on there? It sounds like he can hear what's going on there. But why was it so disjointed before? What on earth is going on? Is there some kind of 
is there some kind of 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 you know magic at work here some kind of sorcery it's a little hard uh to say right um but uh you know how could he possibly be responding to her how could he actually be talking to Sally? because of course remember we know even if she doesn't know we know that that's the doctor right um we know that this is the guy who you know love the doc you know Love the Doctor in 1969 on the wall, right? So he knows who she is. He knows Sally Sparrow. He wrote her name on the wall, behind the wallpaper, in 1969, apparently, right? Um, so uh, that he might possibly be able to hear her or something seems perfectly plausible. And then, of course, we get this from aged Billy in his hospital bed. There's a man in 1969. He sent me with a message for you. What man? The Doctor. And what was the message? Just this. Look at the list. What does that mean? Is that it? Look at the list? He said you'd have it by now. A list of 17 DVDs. I didn't stay a policeman back then. Got into publishing. Then video publishing. Then DVDs, of course. You put the Easter egg on. Have you noticed what all 17 DVDs have in common yet? I suppose it's hard for you, in a way. How could the doctor have even known I had a list? I only just got this. I asked him how, but he said he couldn't tell me. He said he'd understand it one day. Well, that I never would. So the doctor in the past foretold the future, right? So, okay. So... Was the doctor communicating to Sally? Was he responding to her conversation? Well, we see he's sending her messages, right? The doctor, back in 1969, sent her this message. And the message is just as creepy as from the TV, right? Look at the list. The list in her pocket. The list that she just put in her pocket a couple minutes ago, right? How could he possibly know? As she asked. How could he know? I just got this list, right? Um, And of course... Then Billy reveals that he was the one who put the Easter egg on the DVDs years and years ago that she just got the list of. I mean, it's the, again, the, the question of cause and effect, the, the way that the, that the, the fact that this is a time travel story messes with our causal links, right? Is already a really important part. But I'm, okay, but we've proven it anyway now. The doctor is totally talking to her. We knew this, of course, from the first scene with her name behind the wall, but again, the question is not, is the doctor trying to communicate, but how? And how can he possibly know this stuff, right? By what means? Is he, it's like the doctor is somehow seeing all, right? The, the doctor is omnipresent and knows everything. And so he, she just barely put that list in her, but he knew, right? Not only did he know that that list was in her, but somehow he knew in 1969 that she had just, that she would just at this particular time get a list and put it in her pocket and hadn't read it yet, right? How could he possibly know that level of detail, right? Um, but then there's more. As this scene continues, uh, I think a new kind of element, it's like the way in which I was arguing in that very first scene, we sort of modulate from one kind of spooky to another species of spooky, right? Um, 
I think the same thing is true here, where we move from one level of I can tell what's going to happen to a different species of I can predict the future. Soon as I understand it, I'll come and tell you. No, gorgeous girl. You can't. There's only tonight. You told me all those years ago that we'll only meet again this one time. On the night I die. Oh, Billy. It's kept me going. I'm an old sick man. But I've had something to look forward to. is long and you are hard. <laughs> Look at my hands. They're all man's hands. How did that happen? I'll stay. I'm gonna stay with you, okay? Thank you, Salisbury. I have till the rain stops. <laughs> Josh Ramsey was just saying that he, he just read a post on Facebook that blew his mind. Uh, what if Kathy's daughter in 1920 was the Sally that Billy marries in 1969? Um, that would be kind of cool, Josh. I don't know what evidence there is to support that, but that would actually be kind of awesome. Uh, anyway, um, okay. Uh, but the point here, do you see the... the the shift that I'm talking about, right? It's not just he would know that you would have a list and he's sending you a message, right? Again, that's creepy in the one, you know, that's, that's, that's that one species of spooky, right? Somehow he knows he's trying to communicate. It's like over the course of time, from this distance in time, he can perceive what's going on and he just knows. But now the, uh, the, the, the fact that Billy is saying he is, he, the doctor, apparently prophesied the exact hour of Billy's own death, right? You will only meet her on the day that you die, right? And then later when he says, I only have until the rain stops, right? That is precision, man, right? That the doctor prophesied his death. Um, and notice how that has even impacted Billy himself, right? He says, I've, he's been holding on, right? It gave him something to look forward to. The implication, what I hear there left to himself, he might have died sooner, right? Had he not known that he would see her again before he died. Um, uh, that's, um, that, it, I guess, it's like, again, this, do you see what I mean about the, this, the sort of the transition, right? This is, this is prophecy, right? This is no longer like, I can see all things. You know, it's like, I, he, he, he's, He's giving Billy a prophecy of when he's going to, and it's the, it's the exact moment, and before you die, Sally Sparrow will come to you again. Um, you will never know the answer to this, but Sally will. Um, I mean, that's, it's, it's really, it, 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 it creates this sort of suspicion, anyway, of some kind of, like, supernatural thing that's going on here, right? I mean, that this seems to be, as I said, in the first scene, genuinely fantastic, right? Um, 
that's anyway. This is this is it's I, how I would anyway describe the impression that we're that we're giving here. The way that this is kind of building as we go through. Um, now, of course, we've already met the doctor in person. That is, we've seen him. The one of the only two times we ever actually see the doctor not on screen. You know, not on the DVD screen is, of course, Billy meeting him back in 1969. Welcome! Where am I? 1969. Not bad as it goes. You've got the moon landing to look forward to. Oh, the moon landing's brilliant. We went four times back when we had transport. Working on it. How did I get here? Same way we did. Touch of an angel. Same one, probably, since you ended up in the same year. No, 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 no. Don't get up. Touch of an angel. See? Supernatural, I'm telling you. Again, at least as far as we can understand, right? The whole weeping angel thing at the beginning. Yeah, we saw the statues and everything, but still, what the heck is going on? We don't know. And this is what I, this is what I want to emphasize. And I, I've done this a lot. You know, uh, those of you who are doing the class with me will, um, um, will definitely recognize sort of the fact that I really like to not just kind of think about it from the end point of view, but really be thinking about how does this work really kind of manipulate our own understanding, right? I want to look at each moment of the story sort of from the perspective of that moment in the story. Um, I'm fascinated by the way that the stories unfold, and this is a really fascinatingly unfolding story, right? Um, so... Um, as I go through, I like to sort of suspend, not my disbelief, but suspend my knowledge of what's coming later, right? Um, and to see how the things are being built, are, are being built, cause it's, it's really cool, right? This is, this is the effect, um, that it's, anyway, the touch of an angel, right? Is how they both got back here. Well, that makes sense, sort of. Uh, capsule, nasty. Catch your breath, don't go swimming for half an hour. I, I don't, I can't. Fascinating race, the weeping angels. The only psychopaths in the universe to kill you nicely. No mess, no fuss, they just zap you into the past and let you live to death. The rest of your life used up and blown away in the blink of an eye. You die in the past, and in the present they consume the energy of all the days you might have had. All your stolen moments. They're creatures of the abstract, they live off potential energy. What in God's name are you talking about? Trust me, just nod when he stops for breath. Track it out with this. This is my timey-wimey detector. Goes ding when there's stuff. Also, it can boil an egg at 30 paces. Whether you want to or not, actually, so I've learned to stay away from hens. It's not pretty when they blow. I don't understand. Where am I? It's 1969, like he says. Normally, I'd offer you a lift home, but somebody nicked my motor. So I need you to take a message to Sally Sparrow. And I'm sorry, Billy. I am very, very sorry. It's going to take you a while going to take you a while. Um, uh, of course, whenever David Tennant looks someone in the eyes and says, I'm sorry, I'm very, very sorry, you know it's bad. Um, so what do we see here? What do we see from the Doctor? What do we learn about the Doctor? How does this... Again, this is the one scene we get of the Doctor in the whole middle of the episode, right? We're not going to see him again, sort of live on screen, until the very, very final sequence of the entire show, right? So what do we learn? How does this help us? This is the one little glimpse. This is the one little thing, you know, like the, like we as viewers were shown the scenes of Kathy back in Hull, 
right? Um, that helped us, that provided us some context so that we could understand what was going on. Here, we can understand, right? So when she sees Billy in the hospital bed, we'll know why. So it, it works in a very similar way, of course, to our seeing Kathy um, back in the hall in 1920. But of course, this is different from that one, right? Because we're getting to see the doctor himself. So surely this will help us to contextualize what's going on. Carita says, we learn that the doctor doesn't make sense, knows everything, and bosses people around. Exactly. Exactly. And Josh, I totally agree with you. He sounds like he's gone completely round the bend. He absolutely sounds like he's gone completely around the bend. I mean, let's consider the evidence of the doc, you know, for and against the doctor's lucidity here, right? Um, first, let's consider his timey-wimey detector, right? It goes ding when there's stuff, he says, right? Even if you ignore, even if you just stop listening before he starts talking about how it uh, involuntarily uh, boils eggs at 30 paces so he's learned to keep it away from hens, right? Even if you ignore that bit, we have a lunchbox, it looks like, with some gears and a, f- a tape, that's going around, a blue light on the top, and a wish-you-were-here postcard stuffed in behind it, right? And he says, he calls this his timey-wimey detector that goes ding when there's stuff. Um, he seems like a madman, so, ooh, Jonathan Strange crossover, right? Maybe that means that he's a fairy. Oh, never mind. Um, uh, okay, so, anyway, this doesn't help us to understand exactly what's going on. Either the Doctor is completely insane, or he does actually see things differently from other people. Um, Again, what this is and how it accomplishes what it accomplishes, I don't really know. Of course, this is the second time we've heard that phrase, timey-wimey stuff, right? Um, That's the phrase that he uses in the video in that moment when it seems like he is most clearly interacting with Sally. Right, um, this the sentence that um, it's the sentence that doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't end well, right? You know, he he uh, he, he sort of loses track loses track of that sentence. Um, so, some sort of wizardry, some sort of supernatural perception. This obviously can't be a real thing. This lunchbox spinny timey wimey thing, right? Um, it, uh, yeah, yeah, clearly, clearly there's something else going on here, right? So, I mean, it's, then the stuff that he's saying, you know, what are you going on about, says Billy, right? He has no idea, um, what the, what the, what the doctor is talking about. The way in which, um, the way in which this scene totally fails to explain how the doctor knows what he knows and sees what he sees, right? The confidence with which he sits there next to Billy and explains what is going on in terms that neither Billy nor we can fully understand um, and um, tells him what's what has happened and what is going to happen, right? Um, Penny Williams says, the doctor is so intelligent he cannot spe- uh, simplify techno- technical stuff sufficiently for humans to understand exactly. And Penny, I love the way, and that's of course a trend all the way through, right? That's been a, um, that's a, a, a sort of a running 
somewhere between running joke and uh, motif uh, of of Doctor Who, right? Is the fact that do- the Doctor can't ever really explain um, things to people, right? So he's always using these sort of vague, this sort of you know, kind of vague and comical language um, in order to explain stuff, or using language so technical and vocabulary that nobody recognizes, and so he might as well just be saying "timey wimey." Um, uh, and Tom, as you point out, he doesn't particularly uh, care to understand. Uh, Josh Ramsey is quoting him, uh, the Doctor, that is, uh, in uh, alluding to Earth as a planet, as the planet of the pudding brains. Uh, absolutely, yes, yes. And Penny, he is always the smartest person in the room. Exactly. Um, yes. But you notice the way in which that idea, which is a running concept throughout the series, how that's being incorporated in this scene, right? How much does he really know? Can we be sure that he doesn't have some kind of... Maybe he is using... Because he knows he can do all these things that nobody else can do and he understands things nobody else understands. Maybe he is using the DVD screen to actually interface with Sally Sparrow in some way. Maybe he actually can see Sally Sparrow where she is. What could be likelier, right? We don't know. We don't have any idea. Josh, of course, uh, is quoting exactly what was going through my mind when, uh, you know, Penny Williams says he's always the smartest person in the room. Josh, of course, um, plucks from my head the quotation, uh, a habit of the very old. They choose the wisest person in the room, the wisest person present to speak to. Uh, the long explanations needed by the young are wearying. That's, of course, Gandalf the White after his return. Uh, when Aragorn accuses him of speaking to himself. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Lots of crossovers here this evening. Anyway, okay, all right, all right. Um, so back to the Doctor here. Let's jump forward to the real conversation, right? Here's finally, as we're getting towards the end of the episode, when we're going to get the Easter egg played from one end to the next. Now watch how... So this is now the reveal, right? Where we're finally learning how this works. Watch how this happens and exactly what it is that we learn. There he is. The Doctor. Who's the Doctor? He's the Doctor. Yep, that's me. Okay, that was scary. No, it sounds like he's replying, but he always says that. Yes, I do. And that. Yep. And this. He can hear us. Oh, my God, you can really hear us. Of course he can't hear us. Look. Notice he doesn't respond to that. See? Everything he says. Yep, that's me. Yes, I do. Yep, and this. Next is... Are you you going to read read out the whole thing? thing? Sorry. Who are you? I'm a time traveller. Or I was. I'm stuck. In 1969... We're stuck. All of space and time he promised me. Now I've got a job in a shop. I've got to support him. Martha. Sorry. I've seen this bit before. Quite possibly. 1969, that's where you're talking from. Afraid so. But you're replying to me. You can't know exactly what I'm going to say 40 years before I say it. 38? I'm getting this down. I'm writing in your bits. How? How is this... Of course, remember, 38 was the apparently totally random thing from that first sequence in the DVD shop, right, where it seems like he's being completely arbitrary. Tell me. Not so fast. 
Yeah, people don't understand time. It's not what you think it is. Then what is it? Complicated. Tell me. Very complicated. I'm clever and I'm listening. And don't patronize me because people have died and I'm not happy. Tell me. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Yeah, I've seen this bit before. You said that sentence got away from you. It got away from me, yeah. Next thing you're going to say is, well, I can hear you. Well, I can hear you. This is impossible. No, it's brilliant. Well, I'm not hear you exactly, but I know everything you're going to say. Always gives me the shivers, I bet. How can you know what I'm going to say? Look to your left. What does he mean by look to your left? I've written tons about that on the forums. I think it's a political statement. He means you. What are you doing? I'm writing in your bits. That way I've got a complete transcript of the whole conversation. Wait until this hits the net. This will explode the egg forums. I've got a copy of the finished transcript. It's on my autocue. How can you have a copy of the finished transcript? It's still being written. I told you, I'm a time traveller. I got it in the future. OK, let me get my head around this. You're reading aloud from a transcript of a conversation you're still having. Uh, uh, Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Oh, actually, never mind that. You can do shorthand. So? <laughs> he can do shorthand. How did he learn shorthand? How is it that that guy happens to know shorthand? I mean, that's pretty implausible, right? Um, anyway, okay. I love the way in which we go back to the moments which, again, as I interrupted to say, right, back to the moments which sounded most random before and now they're not random as we're hearing both halves of the conversation. And, of course, we do discover how is it that he knows the other half of the conversation in order to reply to it, right? Um, and this is most emphatically uh, underscored when... She says, remember the, the, the thing that was most creepy before, right? The thing that made her jump up and, and push pause on the, on, on the remote and yell at the screen in that earlier scene was when he says, you know, she, she's like, it's almost like you can hear me. And he says, I can hear you, right? We got that close up of his face on the screen, but I can hear you, right? And now why does he say that? Why does he say that? Because she says to him in this conversation, now you're going to say, well, I can hear you. And he says, well, I can hear you, right? So on the one hand, this would, it seems to undermine, like it's less creepy now, right? Because we know why he says that, because she just told him to say it, right? Okay, so that seems to, that the, the, the causality works the other way around, right? At the moment where it seemed most strange, most mystical, most like how could he possibly perceive what's going on, he's not perceiving it, right? She is the one causing it, not him. Okay, so people don't understand time, it's a strict, you know, we think of it as a strict progression, he says it's not a, uh, a strict progression um what's in i love the way uh, lawrence's role in this scene i think is absolutely fabulous the way in which we get through him this sort of familiarity with the thing you know the way in which we are encouraged to sort of invest ourselves imaginatively in lawrence's point of view right this transcript this easter egg he's been watching he's seen this thing hundreds of times right uh and um 
and now he's hearing the other half of the conversation. Him and the guys, right, have been speculating about what the other half of the conversation could possibly be for who knows how long, right? Uh, and yet now the mystery is being solved, right? The, uh, the, 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 the issue is being addressed. Now, he's seeing it unfold in front of him, right? Um, and of course, the, the, the sort of the climax of that particular, well, not quite, not yet quite the climax, right? But, um, but a really wonderful moment in that is when he talks about his theories, like how he's written so much about the look to your left, thing, right? He thinks it's a political... The wonderful irony, right? If he had posted on his discussion forums, uh, the egg forums, I think is what he calls them, the Easter egg forums, um, if he had posted on the egg forums uh, that when the doctor says, you know, when, when, when the guy in the DVD, when the ghost extra in the DVDs says, look to your left, I think he's talking about me. I think it's like about me personally, Right? I mean, seriously, what a nutter everybody would have thought he was. But it turns out that's the, the, the real answer, the true solution to the mystery about what the doctor was referring to when he says look to the left is him himself taking notes and in fact doing the thing that not only so that, that that he and all the other posters on the discussion boards have been trying to do, which is fill in the other half of the conversation. So literally he himself is the one that is referred to in the look to your left. By extension, in a sense, all of the other posters in this sort of, you know, online discussion and conspiracy. Um or, or were were uh also sort of being being alluded to, right? Um it's wonderful the way all of that is sort of folded together. So, okay, so we, we get this now, right? So he's a time traveler. Time doesn't work this way. So he has a transcript. He says he's got it on his auto cue, right? He's reading off the transcript. So it's no surprise that it sounds like he's responding to her because he knows what she's saying. It's kind of time delayed, right? It's a little sort of strange conversation, uh, that he's having, but, um, but anyway, he, he, uh, um, he's, and, and again, just thinking back to Lawrence again, how amazing is it that he now discovers after all of this speculation about like, ooh, how could we ever possibly explain the ghost on the DVDs? It turns out he wrote the script himself, right? Again, the transcript that they, the posters came up with is what the doctor is reading from, right? So cool. But anyway, all right. But now we get it anyway, right? Now the mystery has been solved. Now we understand, um, right? And so this, of course, is when is when things get real. What matters is we can communicate. We've got big problems now. They have taken the blue box, haven't they? The angels have the phone box. The angels have the phone box. That's my favorite. I've got that on a T-shirt. What do you mean, angels? You mean those statue things? Creatures from another world. But they're just statues. Only when you see them. What does that mean? Lonely assassins, they used to be called. No one quite knows where they came from, but they're as old as the universe, or very nearly. And they have survived this long because they have the most perfect defense system ever evolved. They are quantum-locked. They don't exist when they're being observed. The moment they are seen by any other living creature, they freeze into rock. No choice, it's a fact of their biology. In the sight of any living thing, they literally turn to stone. And you can't kill a stone. Of course, a stone can't kill you either, but then you turn your head away. Then you blink. 
And oh, yes, it can. Don't take your eyes off that. That's why they cover their eyes. They're not weeping. They can't risk looking at each other. Their greatest asset is their greatest curse. They can never be seen. Loneliest creatures in the universe. And I'm sorry. I am very, very sorry. Uh-oh. It's up to you now. What am I supposed to do? The blue box. It's my time machine. There is a world of time energy in there. They could feast on forever, but the damage they could do could switch off the sun. You have got to send it back to me. How? How? And uh, that's it, I'm afraid. There's no more from you on the transcript. That's the last I've got. I don't know what stopped you talking, but I can guess. They're coming. The angels are coming for you. But listen, your life could depend on this. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. They are fast, faster than you could believe. Don't turn your back. Don't look away and don't blink. Good luck. No, don't, you can't. I'll rewind him. What good would that do? You're not looking at the statue. Neither are you. <laughs> um, I love the effect of the shift here, right? Um, what he's saying now, compared to what he was saying when he met Billy back in 1969, sounds sensible. And they have a context for this. We have a greater context for this. There's an angel statue standing right over there, which Lawrence is looking up at in some trepidation, right? Uh, as he, um, as he is listening to this. Um, notice the way that the understanding of this thing now transforms it, right? What was admittedly spooky and creepy and mysterious, right? The way in which it sounds like he's having a conversation with you. Turns out, no, 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 he can't really hear you, right? Nothing really supernatural going on here, except actually there is. It turns out that the truth is far more terrifying, right? And I love that, you know, remember the first scene when we first meet Lawrence? Okay, no, no, not the first one when we meet Lawrence unclad, but rather the second scene when we meet Lawrence in the DVD shop. And um, he uh, he's, the, the, he's referring to the uh, don't blink part, right? The, scene, the sequence that he just watched again, or just listened to anyway. And remember, he's like, oh, I love that bit, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of intensity of that scene that he really loved, right? He thought that was really awesome. Um, he now, he's now absolutely terrified by this, right? Because now he, you know, it, now it has, in a sense, come true, right? What he thought was, you know, no, this is brilliant, he said, right? Now, all of a sudden, it's not brilliant anymore. So again, you notice, Everything has been transformed, right? How they, how he perceives things, what has, what was familiar is now no longer familiar. There has been a kind of magic that has been worked on our perception of things, on the, on our understanding of their conversation. You know, everything has changed, right? Magic isn't actually being done, but the whole thing is being transformed. And it's, it's the thing that keeps happening throughout this episode. How things keep, you know, keep getting sort of recontextualized and, uh, and now all of a sudden we're hearing it differently as we come to understand. Um, and it turns out that understanding, at least thinking we understand how he knows what he knows, um, you know, at least how he's having that conversation, um, 
is uh, uh, doesn't actually detract from from the mystery, right? Um, he doesn't know. He's only guessing, right? When he's giving them their final instructions, he doesn't know that there's an angel right behind him, right, that they're looking up at. And so when he's saying, don't blink, don't even blink, they're actually staring at and with their gazes transfixing an angel right behind the screen, right? He, he guesses that the angels are coming for them, right? And then says his ominous, I'm very, very sorry line. Um... But anyway, yeah, it's the way that this is recontextualized is, Josh, as you say, made far more terrifying when this happens. So, at this uh, uh, moment, let's bring uh, Trish back in again. Let's give some prizes away. Let's let's. let's I gotta tell you, one one of my favorite lines was when they get to the end and he goes, "There isn't any more." The guy goes, well, "Let's rewind it." <laughs> She's like, "What's that gonna yes. do?" <laughs> <laughs> she's like what good will that do again you notice again that it's the it's he's 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 slow in shifting registers right um it's yeah. all it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's almost like he's clinging to it right surely this is not a story that's now coming alive all around me right this is clearly just a thing still on the deep this is still you know it's right. like it's it it actually Reminds me of that moment in the, uh, well, both the book and the film of the never-ending story, right? Those books that you read are safe, right? Um, well, the, the DVD that he's watching is not safe anymore, right? Now all of a sudden it's come true right. around him. Uh, and he still <laughs> seems to both kind of not get it, but also to almost be uh, uh, in desperation, almost hoping that it isn't true. But um, yeah. Well, so now listen, you have the... Um you have share. You're going to share screen of what prizes we're talking about, right? That's so, right. Do, do you do that now, or do we do that? Okay, I will do that, do that now. Okay, so here are the prizes, and the first prize that, of course, I, your cho- you get you have your choice. You get your okay. choice. Yes, okay. the, the winners choice. of our drawing um, will get their choice of one of the three following presents. Right, present number one. The Angels Have the Phone Box t-shirt. Of course, if you do not yet have the Angels Have the Phone Box on a t-shirt, you should. Right. Um, uh, I think uh, Kat Sass was telling me that uh, uh, Stephen Moffat said that uh, you could purchase a the Angels Have the Phone Box t-shirt online within half an hour of the original airing of this episode when it, when it first came out. Um, so uh, you can still... There are many varieties. This is only one possible version of the Angels Have the Phone Box t-shirt. Um but, uh, but I like this one. There are many others which actually have, you know, pictures of like the, you know, the angels clustered around the TARDIS and stuff. But I like this one better because this looks like the kind of shirt that the people in the original discussion forums would have drawn because they had no idea, right? They didn't know what the angels yeah. were. They didn't know what the phone box was. Um, so we do have this, this sort of suggestive blue box. But apart from that. Plus it, plus it, to me, it also, um, it also looks more like the shirt that the guy would have who refers right. says, oh, I have the T-shirt. You know, it, it's more like this because nobody would really have known what, you know, what the angels would have looked like necessarily. So, yeah, I think that was great. This was great. Yeah, this is so, a great design. So of, of, uh, this is why I happened to select this one. Uh, this one. Angels have the phone box. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm uh, sure you did a thorough review of all I the did. I, I, I did exhaustive research on <laughs> angels have the phone box t-shirts. Uh, and this was my favorite. So, okay. Uh, so that is one choice. 
Your second choice is a Dalek projector alarm clock. That is right. This is an alarm <laughs> clock, and the alarm actually will wake you up by saying, exterminate, exterminate. Uh, so, I mean, seriously, <laughs> right? I mean... If and it you, projects the time on the wall. And it projects the time on the wall, yes. So uh, if you don't have That's this, awesome. why why don't you have this? Uh, and our third <laughs> highly valuable prize is... <laughs> Kevin Ulrich says, dude, that's horrible. I know, kind of creepy, right? <laughs> but funny. And the third is, of course, your own sonic screwdriver. I was looking, uh, scrolling down uh, the Amazon page here, and um, uh, and the, one of the, you know how uh, Amazon has a thing where you can ask questions of people who have already purchased it? One of the questions on the list is, um, uh, does it work on wood? Uh, which I thought was an excellent question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, okay, so these are your, so, so for the winners of our drawing, you will get your choice of one of these three things. You can have a, the angels have the phone box t-shirt. You can have your own sonic stru- screwdriver. It, you, you're right, Caden, the answer is, uh, it, actually the answer is more complicated than that. It doesn't. Um, it can, but, you know, it takes years for the patterns to work. Anyway, um, <laughs> So <laughs> that is the person who answered it did in fact give the give the correct answer. Um and uh and uh, okay so the, the the third the and so you've got the your own sonic screwdriver or the creepy Dalek alarm clock which I thought was hilarious. So now, yeah. I, I actually have an idea here. I mean I know this is Mythgard Academy night, you know, and you're already doing Mythgard Academy courses, but I I kind of wonder if y'all you know, then you can do this if you want to. This this is a Trish thing, okay? This is not anything Corey and I've talked about. It's not even really official. But if you wanted maybe totally Corey to nervous. do some more some <laughs> more commentary on maybe some Doctor Who episodes, maybe let's say you know a few over the next year, put in a donation and you know note that you want it to be a Doctor Who episode because I think this is pretty awesome. Um, I don't even know a number. I don't know, you know, because y'all have already been so generous. I mean, you know, let's just do it and let's see what we get to. And I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hold his hand over the fire to do some more of these for some other iconic Doctor Who episodes. It would be fun to do a series where we get to do a sort of a, a kind of survey through, you know, through the seasons uh, of uh, of the new Who. I think that would be, uh, um, well, you know, and another one, another thing that I think would be interesting is you're kind of doing this tonight, which is there are these iconic villains in the Doctor Who series, the new mm-hmm. Doctor Who series. You know, you've got the Angels, you've got the Cybermen, of course the Daleks, everybody's favorite. Yeah. Um, the, the, what are the guys, the Who, what are they, the Hot, the Who, what are they, the, the ones that don't ask, anyway. Um, to see, you know, like you're doing the, the, the first episode where we see the Angels, it'd be fun to go back and look at the first episodes where we first see these iconic villains, you know, uh, 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 for for Doctor Who. Anyway, that was one yeah. of my ideas. But the silence just an idea are the ones had. that you were thinking of there. The yeah. Silence, that's yeah. what I was thinking of, yeah. yeah. Um, just an idea I had, you know, I'm thinking if we, I don't even know a number, maybe y'all could throw out a number that would be good for us to go for, and if we get to that number, Corey's, you know, absolutely bound to do, you know, <laughs> at least three episodes through the year. Uh, three, uh, of course, like this, three episodes. So anyway, think about that. But let's get back to the, the winner. Now, anybody who wins, by the way, what you need to do is send an email to info at signumuniversity.org to let That's us right. know That's right. what your choice is and what your address is. Um, 
that we can have them stuff mailed to. And our winner tonight, and I hope I get this right, is Ricole Richards. R I C H O L Richards. Oh yeah, Ricole Richards. Excellent. So congratulations to Ricole Richards. So send us uh, at info in, at info at dot org, which you want, whether it's the T shirt, the Dalek alarm clock. How could you not want that? And, or the sonic screwdriver. Yeah. Set, and we'll get that off to you. Excellent. Okay, so we'll we'll draw another winner uh, at our next break. Yes, and I'm going away now to listen and take notes. All right. Okay, let's get to the end of the episode here. We are we are we are coming in on, uh, and I'm remembering to switch my audio before I go back to the video here. Okay. Um, yeah, it's actually kind of a challenge transmitting video like this uh, through this software. Um, so I've got to do this kind of work around and remember to do that. Okay. All right. Um, all right. We, we finished this one. Left that one at a climactic moment. Then, of course, they get chased around and everything. I want to rejoin things again, thinking about the way that things are being recontextualized. Listen to how they talk here at the, the sort of the, 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 the climax in the, in the final moments. Who episode if we didn't have people careening around the TARDIS? At least once. Notice how they speak first to and then of the doctor, right? When the, it, he's not there, right? He's not there. The fact that, like, yes, a little projection of him popped up. Notice how it's grainy, just like the DVDs were, right? So this grainy little, uh, uh, you know, hologram of the doctor pops up and says what is obviously an automatic recording, right? This is security protocol 712, right? Um, and, um, so he's not there, right? And yet when the thing, so she starts saying, doctor, doctor, like as if he can hear her, right? As if 
the doctor sees and hears all things and is interacting with them from afar. In other words, the whole, like, I just have the transcript in front of me. I just made this static recording years ago. A transcript was delivered to me. I got it in the future. It was delivered to me. I'm just reading off it. That's the solution to the whole mystery. Well, it's not a satisfying solution to the whole mystery, right? It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain how did he know that she had the list in her pocket? How did he, he know the minute of Billy's death back in 1969? How did he know? I mean, there are all these things which still... Okay, actually, still a better explanation for those things is that somehow the Doctor can see and hear all things, right? That in some sense, the Doctor is with us, right? And so she's calling out to him for help. And then even after the fact, the Doctor tricked them, right? The Doctor, not only did he know what we would do, the Doctor knew what the angels will do, would do. And he manipulated them into this position so that they ended up standing like they're standing here. And are now are looking at each other and they're trapped per into permanent stasis because they're all looking at each other. That's that's because the doctor does everything and knows everything, right? They can't seem to shake that idea and it's kind of hard for us to shake that idea too. And of course when we return to uh Sally and Lawrence, a year later, we find, of course, that she still can't shake it either. Can you mind the shop? I'm just in the next door for some milk. Yeah, no worries. What's this? Nothing. Sally. Can't you let it go? Of course I can't let it go. This is over. How did the doctor know where to write those words in the wall? How could he get a copy of the transcript? Where did he get all that information from? Look, some things you never find out, and that's okay. No, it isn't. How did he get all this information? It's still not explained, right? And don't you love the delicious reversal in this scene, right? When they met in this shop, right... He was the one who was, like, the internet conspiracy guy, right? Like, he has this, like, shares this obsession about this ghost DVD extra with these other guys out there on the internet, right? And they talk about it. Um, and now she is the one who's, like, collecting things, and she's keeping her little folder, and she's not letting it go, and he's like, some things we just aren't going to understand, <laughs> right? It's like, you've just got to go and and live your life, right? Um yeah, Rachel, she took pictures of the angels back when she first went there. Um, remember on that first night when she had her camera, she had, she, she, she took a picture of the angels then. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so she, uh, I, I guess, I, the reversal, the reversal of their positions. Also, those bead curtains, who has bead curtains anymore? Isn't that very late sixties? Wouldn't you say? Anyway, sorry. Um, then, of course, we finally get the Doctor again. I love the bow and arrows. Doctor! 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 Hello. Sorry. Bit of a rush. There's a sort of thing happening. Very important that we stop it. My God, it's you. It really is you. Oh, you 
you don't remember me, do you? Doctor, we haven't got time for this. Migration started. Look, sorry, I've got a bit of a complex life. Things don't always have to be in quite the right order. It gets a bit confusing at times. Especially at weddings. I'm rubbish at weddings. Especially my own. Oh, my God, of course. You're a time traveller. Hasn't happened to you yet, none of it. It's still in your future. What has not happened? No, Doctor, please, 20 minutes to red hatching. It was me. Oh, for God's sake, it was me all along. You got it all from me. Got what? Okay, listen. One day you're going to get stuck in 1969. Make sure you've got this with you. You're going to need it. Doctor! Yeah, listen, listen. Got a dash. Things happening. Well, four things. Well, four things and a lizard. Okay. No worries. Honey, go. See you around someday. What was your name? Sally Sparrow. Good to meet you, Sally Sparrow. I love his expression. Four things and a wizard. Um, <laughs> one of my other favorite lines from this episode. Um, the reversal, right? She's the one who knows the future. She is the one who is the cause of the whole thing. How did he learn all of this stuff? How could he possibly know all of these things? The thing that makes it so mysterious in the first place is that these are all things... It's just like the DVDs, right? What do these 17 DVDs have in common? What they have in common is that they are the only 17 DVDs that she owns, right? What is What is the thing that makes... It's so mysterious, all of this information that he somehow knows, right? The list that she has in her pocket in the exact minute at which she got the list. The min- the moment at which Billy is going to die in his hospital bed. How does he know? What the thing that they all have in common is that she was there and she knows them. And she has spent this last year writing this stuff down. Right, and collecting all of the facts together so that she can try to make some sense of it, so that she can try to explain how all of this stuff came to be. And the answer to how all of this stuff came to be is her having gathered all of this stuff together. The things, the the pieces that she's been trying to put together are in fact the cause of the entire thing and the answer themselves to the riddle. Um, uh, the, this is, I find this anyway completely delightful um but again it's the thing that is you know the 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 the, the i'm about to say the pivotal thing which would have been ironic it's the reversal right he turns out to be ignorant he's not all knowing he's not all seeing she's the one who was all knowing she was the one who knows the future not him just uh just wonderful um and we we can see when we when you go back and you watch the episode again for a second or 18th time, uh, you notice some things, right? Like, okay, hang on a second. How did she get involved in this in the front? Why did she learn? Where did this all start? What did you come here for anyway? I love old things. They make me feel sad. What's good about sad? It's happy for deep. She just, she likes old things, right? Why was she here? Why did she discover that thing? Why did any of this begin? It's because of who she is, right? She is the cause. 
because she likes old things and thinks, you know, old things are sad and sad is happy for deep people, because this is who she is, she went here and she saw these things and began. So, you know, where where is the end of this thread? In her, who she is and the choices that she makes. But, you know, so so what do we have? We have, ironically, a suspense thriller that can't happen unless the ending is already known, right? So we come back to sort of the jokes about the genre at the beginning. But, of course, there are a couple more things which are... so No, not exactly. They're not exactly Easter eggs, but a couple other things I can't help but uh, mention briefly. Um... A couple moments, uh, as for instance, this moment of ironic foreshadowing. Um, Billy, of course, has never seen anything before other than, uh, 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 other than Sally, of course, herself. He knows nothing about the angels and nothing about the doctor. Sally, um, also has heard nothing about the angels other than Beware the Weeping Angels that she saw, but she has no idea how it works or anything like that. And yet we get this scene here just kind of sitting there in the middle of the episode. Told them I had a family crisis. Why? Because life is short and you are hot. Drink? No. Ever? Maybe. Ever. Phone number? Moving out of fast, D.I. Shipton. Billy, I'm off duty. Aren't you just? Moving fast. The irony! Is that your phone number? Just my phone number. Not a promise. Not a guarantee. Not an IOU. Just a phone number. And that's Sally... Sally Shipton. Sparrow! Sally Sparrow. Okay, go in now. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't phone you tomorrow. Don't look at me. Might even phone you tonight. Don't look at me. Definitely gonna phone you, gorgeous girl. Definitely better. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tonight. Maybe in five minutes for you and in 40 years for me. Right? It's the don't look at me part of the scene that I loved so much. Right? She's embarrassed, right? So she says to him, don't look at me, because when you look at me, well, she's not going to turn into stone if he looks at her, but she's going to blush, right? She's going to be really embarrassed, so he can't look at her. The way, moments like this, I mean, you could see, you hear all of the ritually ironic things, right? Um, you know, and she, and he says, drink, ever, right? No, actually, they're never going to have a drink together. Uh, It's just so many, so many things, and hang on, Sarah, I didn't notice that. Hang on. Gotta look. What's on his arm? Wait. I'm looking. Where's his arm? Other arm. Show me your left shoulder, man. Where's your left shoulder? Not your right shoulder. Turn around. Ha! The, the sparrow. There it is. Yeah. The sparrow badge on his shoulder. Very good. Very good, Sarah. I totally missed that. Yeah. Excellent. That's very cool. Or maybe it's a nightingale. Who knows? Um, that is pretty cool. Yeah, I did not notice that at all. Uh, thanks, Sarah Powell, for pointing that out. Um, so anyway, l- lots of really, you know, the sort of the, the wonderful, ironic foreshadowing. But this is just foreshadowing, right? This is just sort of fun for us. It's not like there's, it's not like it's actually in that sense sort of part of the story. I mean, uh, it, it'll be ironic to Sally in retrospect, right? But then there's this moment. Go to the police, you stupid woman. Why does nobody ever just go to the police? (laughs) 
that's probably just a coincidence, right? I mean, the fact that she happened to overhear this guy saying, go to the police, you stupid woman, um, to the movie that he was watching at the time, uh, and the fact that his disconnected comment happens to connect directly to what she's saying, just like the DVD of the doctor in the other room who sounded like he was saying he could hear her. That's totally a coincidence, even though, of course, when she does take the advice that she hears as if he was speaking to her, and goes and she finds the TARDIS there, right? Um, she meets Billy and finds the TARDIS there, and so certainly if she had not gone to the police, that wouldn't... But it's just a coincidence, right? There's nothing else kind of going on here, right? So, no problems. All right. Uh, uh, that's, I'm gonna, I'm, 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 I know I started a little bit late, but I'm already running over time. Uh, and I want to bring in our special guest, but first let me, uh, let me bring Trish back. Let's, let's do another prize drawing. Great. Okay. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, so you, so everybody remembers what we got, right? We got the T-shirt that says the angels have the phone box, right? That's right. Yeah. We have the Dalek alarm clock, which is too so creepy it's cool. Absolutely. And then we have the make your own sonic screwdriver over eighty combinations. Woohoo! <laughs> and our illustrious winner this evening is Ellen Cormier. Ellen Cormier, excellent. So don't forget, info at signumuniversity.org. Let us know which thing you want and what your mailing address is to That's mail right. it to. That's right. And, of course, if you choose the T-shirt, you should give relevant sizing information and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think the yeah. sizing is standard on the Dalek alarm clock, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I also enjoyed the bow on his back when he got out of the taxi. <laughs> that was a <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the he's got the bow, and Martha uh, Martha Jones has the quiver of arrows, right? And the uh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, and I love that four things and a lizard. I, things, I just, that whole yeah. this is great. It was great. You know, whenever David Tennant says "Wow," you know, and I, I always I always love sentences that include <laughs> David Tennant saying that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's 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 a. Uh, that, that, that's yeah, another, a another interesting thing, you know, not to harken back to this potential goal of maybe raising some money for you to do additional Doctor Who episodes, another uh, thread would be to continue to follow the angels because, mm-hmm. you know, the the other the rest of the episodes that we see them in, um, you know, are really interesting. And it's interesting how they come into Matt Smith's tenure yes. um, and, and, and play a role. So uh, so that's another possibility. So if we raise some money, I don't know what it would be, a thousand bucks? Yeah, you know, maybe if we got a thousand bucks going, we could talk Corey into something like that. So yeah, let yeah, us know, and do, if you want to do, do that, and do add, a, you, yeah. add some shekels. Just make a note at the top when you go to Rezu and 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 say you want it toward the Doctor Who uh, Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, and I have to admit, I re- the thing that I was primarily torn by um, when choosing episodes was I really love. Matt Smith and the Ponds. I mean, I just totally fell in love with Matt Smith and the Ponds. Oh, yeah. Rory Williams is like my favorite character in all of New Who. Like, bar none. I love Rory Williams. Uh, uh, just very, it, with, uh, with fiery passion. So, I, 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 uh, it, it, it would be fun. It would definitely be fun. Um, oh, Josh is a Donna Noble fan. Okay. I like Donna. Yeah, she was one of my favorite companions. Um, 
I, I, Rory Williams, I'm sorry, but oh, and, uh, and, and so so uh, tragic, you know. The, yes, yes, the, yes, the, the Donna, the Donna so, story, absolutely. Oh my, I think I shed many tears on that one. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, the Doctor Donna. Um, well, I'm going to bow out and allow the real experts, Kurt and Cat, join you. Here. Excellent. So yes, I yes. Be, let's uh, do that. I may let's be back that. a little later. If not, I will talk to you guys. Those of you that are in some film, I will see you in the morning. Very good. That's right. That's right. And don't forget, um, just to, one thing that I was remembering that I should also make sure to uh, uh, to emphasize, as of course this is the uh, this is the Mythgard Academy fundraising event, um, is don't forget uh, voting rights. That uh, for everybody who donates twenty five dollars or more to our campaign, you get voting rights uh, in choosing our Mythgard Academy courses for the whole coming year. And for people who donate a hundred dollars or more over the course of the of, of the whole year, so either a hundred dollars in a lump or monthly pledges exceeding a hundred dollars uh, for the year, um, you will uh, get to be on the Council of the Wise, which is the committee who nominate, who elects, chooses, and nominates the the, uh, the 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 slate of finalists that the electorate as a whole gets to choose among uh, for our final uh, for our, our final selection for the Mythgard Academy classes for the uh, you know the twenty sixteen year. So, uh, uh, definitely that's been, uh, it's been, I have, uh, I've loved the democratic process. Um, we're right now, as I said, we're doing Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is the first of all of the Mythgard Academy classes that is doing a book that I had never read before. Well, okay, I'd read it before the class started, but not, a, not I hadn't read it before it got elected. Um, as soon as it was elected, I sat down and started reading it. And that's been, that's been a wonderful discovery for me. I love the book. Um, so anyway, been really enjoying the democratic process. Hope that, uh, uh, that you guys will, uh, sort of can keep the uh, democratic process going here. All right. Um, I'm going to bring in uh, uh, Kurt and Kat to uh, chat a little sort of big picture Doctor Who here. Or help, uh, I don't know if you want to make sure you guys can still, everybody can still hear my audio um, and video. I'm getting my, my video on screen here is frozen, so I hope it's not totally frozen for everybody. Uh, <laughs> Kurt and Kat, are you here? I can hear you, so that's that's a good yep, sign. Yep, I can hear and see you. Okay, good. Good, excellent. Um, I don't know why my local picture is frozen, which is a little unfortunate, but I trust it will get itself back into uh, back into shape here pretty soon. Um, well, tell me tell me your, your thoughts. When you guys got to this episode uh, in your podcast, what were some of the main things that you guys were really focused on? What what what, what sort of interested you guys most? Um, yeah, well, there were a lot of different things. Um, I think the one thing that, um, and and you didn't really talk about it, which is good because we can talk about it now, um, <laughs> is, is the ending, the very ending, the yeah. last sort of scene that you get there where the doctor... You're seeing him on the screen repeating the don't blink message, yes. but you're getting the uh, views of all the different statues and, and everything throughout, and, and it's very much a message, it seems, to the audience rather right. than to Sally. And um, a few years ago when I was working on my um, paper that I wrote on Cabin in the Woods, I learned a very useful word, uh, diegetic, and... Um, it, it came in handy when we were talking about this episode because one of the things, and, and even as I was, I was sort of um, creeping on the comments here that people were making because I don't normally get to do that, and <laughs> it was fun. Um, but also, one of the things that that people were talking about was like, okay, you know, how 
how do, um, you know, why don't the angels move sometimes? Well, one of the sort of theories that Kat and I talked about um, when talking about this episode was that that's because we're watching. It's not just that the angels oh, nice. are, are you know, responding to the diegetic eyes of the people in, you know, the story itself, but that the camera actually gives us a view. And then, you know, the thing that sort of backs that up is that final scene where you get the doctor basically talking to the audience and saying, you know, don't blink, watch out. You know, there are these statues all over the place and you never know which ones might be... Uh, angels and which ones are are perhaps benign that's right that's right i actually have that scene want me to show it yeah that's it was like the 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 one clip i held off on but i won't you know if given the excuse not to okay here it is Absolutely. It says, scare as many kids as possible. <laughs> That's <idea>. right. <laughs> and and I, I'm probably forgetting some other episode, but I mean, this <clears> is <throat> the only episode that I can think of offhand anyway, where you really get that, like they're talking directly to you as a viewer. Um, yes. And, and, you know, given the sort of uniqueness of it as a Dr. Light episode, it's sort of a one-off, you know, singular story. It's, you know, self-contained anyway and all of that it just i i think it adds to the overall atmosphere of the episode there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a great point because of course as you say it's it's pretty significant that we do never we never see an angel move right it never it never happens in Um, this episode in this in this episode yeah yeah exactly exactly and, and I, I, if I were allowed to, I would veto the looking at the other episodes with the angels <laughs> in it because it, it because it never gets, I think, quite as scary or as well portrayed as you get here um, in this yes. one. There's, there's, they they try to add or do slightly different things with the angels or very different things with the angels in yes. some cases yes. that that just don't seem to fit in quite as well. But um, yeah, no. Well, it's a perfect example of that kind of less is more aesthetic with Doctor Who because yes, I, there are things I liked about those those later episodes, but they do try to every time you see the angels, you sort of learn more about their rules and how they work and their mythology, which on the one hand is interesting. On the other hand, it takes away somewhat of the simplicity of the idea. So you know, I, I like that idea that you know. I, as a viewer, can keep the characters safe because I can see the statues. So when we start to see them move in later episodes, it kind of expands that idea or, mm-hmm. you know, bends that rule somewhat. Um, although adding other ones on top of it. So um, mm-hmm. I also wanted to mention with that kind of metatextual layer of the doctor talking to us outside of the screen, that that pairs really well, I think, with the Dr. Light episode, because 
this is not the only, for like the kind of um, wider context of the show, this isn't the only Dr. Light episode. That That's sort of a production reality that every so often they need to shoot episodes at the same time. So you have to have an episode where the main characters are only in it for 10 minutes. So, but they kind of, I think, again, turned that what could be a restriction into a virtue. And those episodes, for me, always have to do about, even though the doctors featured the least in them, they always have to do with what the doctor is about and what the show is about. So yes. by removing him, it kind of, the story always tends to become about rather than the people who are like you know lucky enough to travel with him as companions it becomes about everybody else so it becomes about like the fan experience so you know in love and monsters you get people starting fan clubs you know right. over their mutual love of the doctor and here it's sort of you know internet you know longtime fan larry and like noob sally are sort of you know interacting with you know this dvd that they're really interested in which is sort of what we're all doing at home is watching DVDs about the Doctor and talking about them online. So, you know, I like that those metatextual elements kind of work together in this episode. Right, and uh, some, some somebody mentioned, which I both, uh, well, I, I sort of assumed and half hoped that it was true that on the DVD version of the of the show yeah. that you can there is an Easter egg where you can get the video, right? Is that true? Yeah, it's sort of on if you like go to you know screen whichever screen and you know click your you know remote three times to the right or whatever, it'll bring up the the kind of his audio. There's no back and forth. It's just his audio straight through. Yeah. You can find it on YouTube as well to watch it. So. You know, if you were so inclined, you could just play it straight through and do the dialogue with him. There's no Sally in that scene. It's just, you know, an unbroken five minutes of David Tennant talking to the camera. So just as, it's pretty great. Just as, just as, as, as Lawrence would have experienced it, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's true. Uh, Caden Kumar mentioned um, uh, Turn Left as another example yeah. of one of those. Of course... I suppose it would be Dr. Light in as much as he's dead for most of the episode. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Okay. But again, but again, it's about it by him not being there. It becomes the most doctor heavy episode ever because it's what it's about what happens when he's not there. Absolutely. You know, so his absence is always sort of very loud. Right. But it also, Dr. Light episodes. exactly. But it's also about, the significance of the agency of the non-doctor right? is about Donna's right. choice, right? And the significance right. of, of Donna's choice. And you can see that, of course, the Sally Sparrow story turns in the same way, right? It turns out that the doctor was, I mean, of course, he was an important character, but he wasn't the pivotal one, right? She was the pivotal one. And what she did, right. not just in, 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 you know, at, at every stage, right? Not only in handing over the stuff to him at the end, um, but in collecting it and doing it. It turns out that all of the stuff that, fortunately, she didn't follow Lawrence's advice and just let it go, right? She kept collecting and perfecting. You, the, 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 the transcript, I mean, at least I, I get this impression that the transcript he's reading from is, of course, not that shorthand scrawl that Lawrence made, right? Lawrence made the shorthand scrawl. Doubtless, Sally Sparrow has gone back 
based upon that and from her own memory it's filled it out and retyped a full double transcript, right? Um, so, so again, it's, it's about her choices and what she did. Um, and, and just as it is with Donna in the, in the turn left episode. And that does seem to be, you know, one of the things that like it's, that there is this sort of, uh, motif of how, what the companions do really matters, right? I mean, it really, it really, ma- you know, they are, they are significant. This is not just the doctor's show in that sense. And I do think that those, the, those moments do really, uh, really emphasize that really strongly. Yeah. Well, we've yeah. talked about that a lot is, is kind of who is, you know, the, the main character. Like, I mean, a lot of times we're kind of invited to identify with the companion because they're more on our level, but right. there's an argument to be made that they are, you know, the main characters of the show, you know, and, you know, I've heard that split that maybe the, the doctor is, you know, the hero, but the companion is the protagonist or something, some sort of split that way. Right. Um, not, not to say that the companions aren't heroic as well. But. And you could even, so, sorry, Curtis, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say one of the things that I remember we talked about too um, is not just so much that that Sally's like the pivotal character in this, but that the plot of this episode is actually like woven around her. It's yeah. like you, you know, given all of the back and forth and the timey wimeyness of it, um, you know, it's her actions that then you know she gives the doctor the script and he goes off and like things happen in the future and in the past and all this stuff around the events of that you know whatever two-day period or something like that and in her life and um i think that's that's interesting one because it's you know sort of just a small segment so you know thinking of just the title of blink you know it's just a blink out of her life but then Mm -hmm. there's other aspects to the title as well with you know it's kind of her way of almost experiencing who the doctor is without ever really meeting him in that like, you know, people come and go out of her life, you know, uh, Kathy gets sent back. Um, and, uh, uh, sorry, what's his name? The cop gets sent back. Billy. Yeah. 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 Billy. Thank you. Um, you know, gets sent back and, you know, all these things happen, but, um, you know, for her, it's just like, she, things keep going on. So there's sort of that almost like she's getting a taste of what the doctor is, which is also a very companion-ish sort of thing. You know, all the companions sort of get this taste of the doctor and then just as they're getting that taste, it kind of ends for them. Yeah. Um, That's a, that's an awesome way of thinking about it, Curtis. I love that idea. Cause I mean, surely Sally Sparrow's point of view, especially thinking of the Billy sequence, Right? She meets this guy, he asks her out for a drink because life is short and she is hot, right? He calls her five minutes later and he's dying of old age, right, in a hospital bed. And the whole thing has taken, like, what, an hour of her life, right? And she's, and, and, and it's, it's like, yeah thinking about that as a glimpse of what it's like to be 900 years old, right? Uh, and, and have these mortals coming in and out of your life like that. That's a, that's a lovely way to think about it. Um, Kat, I was going to say in response to your other, your issue about like sort of, uh, the, the, the way in which, you know, sort of understanding or think or, you know, conceiving of the, the companions as the actual protagonist of the story and everything. Of course, there's a, there's a delightful way in which the title of the show, uh, puns into that, right? Doctor Who, right? It's not actually about the doctor, right? It's about, uh, it's about, it's about them, you know, the very fact that and I, I've always loved the title of the show, you know, for the way, the different ways in which it can be used. Um, 
And uh, I, I mean, I basically, as soon as I as I watched my very first episode and discovered that he was just called the Doctor, and so therefore, mm-hmm. sort of seeing the play on you know Doctor Who in the title, I've like I've loved it ever since I first saw that. I've loved <laughs> it uh, because it, it has so many uh, different uh, uh, different applicabilities. Um, uh, in- including, of course, obviously the one that it gains in the course of the plot through when is that season seven? Is that that right? Yeah. Like six and seven? Yeah, yeah. With the, the kind of the yeah. question, the question, exactly. Um, right, right, right. But even um, Curtis bringing up that uh, idea of blank, like even aside from the Doctor Who ish plot, there's just that notion of time moving in a blink of an eye. That you know, the line of uh, you know, when did my hands get so old? How did that happen? That there's that's just a metaphor for how time kind of passes, even yes. Yes. As, aside from the time travel. You know, that yeah. you suddenly turn around and years have gone by and you barely noticed. Yes. Um, yeah, because we're all traveling through time, right? I mean, everybody's a time traveler. That's 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 part of the idea. No, exactly, and and I I I love that too. I mean, when when Billy, when aged Billy says, "How did this happen?" It's 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 just one of those moments which it's like the the whole the whole episode, you know, in two seconds, right there. You know, when he asks that question, it's it's really, uh, um, yeah, that's really great. So no, it's. Um, I, I do, you know, the way that it invites thought about, I know one of the things that I, I think one of the other things that I really loved about this episode is that to some extent I had been a little bit disappointed in the fact that this series, I mean, I love stuff like what happens in this episode, all of the different kind of paradoxes that are possible, the, the kinds of thing that J.K. Rowling did so well in The Prisoner of Azkaban. You know, the demonstrably best book in the Harry Potter series, right? Um, and it's clearly, and again, this is not, this is not my opinion, people. It's provable, okay? Like, it is obviously the best book. Uh, again, I'm not stating a judgment there, just, uh, observing a, a, a manifest fact. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that makes it such a such a wonderfully constructed plot is the way that she plays with the whole time paradox and what sort of time travel actually means, right? You know what it, there and there are many times, um, as I was saying, that I felt in the first two and a half seasons uh, of Doctor Who where I was a little disappointed that we hadn't gotten more of that, right? Like, I mean, if he's a time travel, like for instance, I remember thinking in episode number two. Um, of the of season one, when Rose is taken on her first trip and they go forward to the year five billion and see the destruction of the Earth, um, when he fixes her cell phone and she calls her mom, right? And they do this thing where it's like, meanwhile, back in two thousand five, here's what her mom is doing, and I'm like, you can't do a meanwhile like. Five minutes passing for her in the year five billion doesn't mean five minutes have passed back in two thousand five. Time travel doesn't work that way, right? And so I was, you know, I, I, I had in that in season one, I had that moment of kind of like disappointment where I had to sort of compel myself to suspend disbelief. And there were a number of cases where I'm like, okay, 
at the very least, they're losing opportunities here, right? To sort of really show, like, the impact of time travel and the kind of, you know, and they, they sort of, they did it a little bit in the, uh, the Father's Day episode and, and it's, I forget the, the sequel of it, when Rose saves her father's life, right? Um, you know, they, they get into it to some extent there, but, uh, but still it wasn't like the full, so that's why I was so excited when we got to Blink, because I felt like this was the first episode where they really took full advantage of that opportunity to really think, okay, now this is what time travel's all about, right? This is the kind of thing that you're, that you're, the kind of story that you're capable of making when you think about time travel stuff, and, and, uh, and, and there was, um, so to, to me, I was, I was, I was super excited about it for that reason. Yeah, well, people can and have spent many long hours debating the virtues of the Russell T. Davies era and the Stephen Moffat era. And this one's kind of interesting because it's a Stephen Moffat episode in the Russell T. Davies era. So you're sort of mixing uh, sensibilities a little bit. But I think um, that's one thing I think you can kind of demonstrably, again, like with Prisoner of Azkaban, you can prove this. That's one thing that Moffat is way more interested in yeah. is is time travel as a, not just as a vehicle for the show of we can go to the past and the future but as a plot device within the story so telling stories non-linearly and you know I mean and you get Davies does it a little bit like even this season starts with the doctor meeting Martha out of order you know he shows her Yes. You know, his tie first. And then, yes. you know, and yes. the season culminates in a whole big with the paradox machine and past and future and everything. But um, so he it's not that he doesn't use it at all. But, um, you know, Moffat is definitely this is his that's his sort of thing that he's interested in, um, no you know, and then later you get the whole ponds and river song and everything. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. If, yeah. if that appeals to you, that's a very Moffat idea, I think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and listen, as somebody else points out, from one of the more recent seasons. Um, yeah, yeah. Wait, which one is that? That's season eight. So that's the first Capaldi <laughs> season, right? Yes. Yeah. Which... Yeah, which is the one where Clara is on her on her date, uh, oh, her kind of ill-fated yeah. date with yeah, Danny Pitt. That's right. And that's right. There's some back and forth in time with another Moffat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, episode. So that's sort of his. Probably the thing he's most, which is kind of weird for Doctor Who, you would think they would have been doing stories like this all along, but right. that's exactly. kind of one thing that uh, Moffat very much put in the foreground is, you know, um, paradox and kind of timey wiminess as a theme of the show. Well, and that's what, you know, finally, when, uh, um, when, with 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 Clara, you know, when 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 you know Clara is brought back home, you know, only like thirty seconds after she left, right? That's that's you know, final like okay, fi- that's finally thinking it through in ways that like season one wasn't really doing uh, consistently. But by the way, I, I'm you know, as you know, I'm I'm still a complete noob. I have now watched all of them at least through season eight. Um, uh, as far as my as far as my 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 Netflix has brought me, um, but apart from the you're fact that I you're ahead of Curtis actually. <laughs> oh, am I? Okay. How yeah, how how far are you, Curtis? We're about halfway through season eight in our in what we've recorded for the podcast. We just um, we just started. Mm-hmm. We we just have the first episode of season eight actually up and Posted. available. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. we're coming down in the home stretch of season eight in our recording. Okay. Um, so. 
And we'll be oh, getting... Yeah, I guess we're a little further than halfway, but yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, and then uh, we'll be getting into Season 9, which is running now. So right. we're, we're catching up. But cool. we go at a slow pace. Hey, <laughs> I, I, I love slow pace. That's excellent. That's very good. Um, so, yeah, so at, at, when does the Russell T. Davies era end and the Stephen Moffat era begin, exactly? Davies is Davies' is seasons of the new show, um, one through four. So One through four. Um, so through David Tennant, so, basically. So Eccleston and Tennant is Davies, okay. and uh, Matt Smith and Capaldi are Stephen Moffat. Although okay. Stephen Moffat has been writing since the first ser- series, so right. you get at least one episode. Um, right. So the empty child and the girl in the fireplace, Blink and Silence in the Library are all um, Stephen Moffat episodes before right. he before he takes over as the sort of lead writer of the series. Okay. 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 And, and you can so, see as soon as Matt Smith comes in, it gets much more timey wimey and loopy and <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, you know, and thinking about the two eras and, and you know, that this is Moffat and sort of introducing concepts that he revisits later um, you know the, it, not only do we get more stories of the angels but someone had actually pointed out I forget who I apologize it was much earlier um, how some of the you know uh, characterization here with Sally and Lawrence are sort of reflective of the pawns in later episodes and then um, just even thinking of sort of hopefully this isn't too spoilery for people but thinking of their own fate <laughs> Um, yeah, the pawn's fate. Yeah, um, yeah, the pawn's fate, and yeah. and um, the idea of the angels killing you nicely, um, and how do they do that? They they do it by sending you back, and and of course we see everyone who gets sent back from sort of Sally's eyes here, and um, in this episode, and and so it's sort of tragic for her, right? Because you know her best friend gets sent back or whatever, but um, and Billy gets sent back, you know, potential love interest uh, and all of that, but. For them, I mean, they end up still leading fairly happy, long, fulfilling lives. And so for them, it's actually not that bad of a, you know, punishment. Right, right. (laughs) Um, You know, even despite, um, as you pointed out, you know, when when David Tennant looks into your eyes and says, I'm very, very sorry, (laughs) you should be afraid. But we find out that, you know, Billy actually had a decent career and found love and, you know grew old and we see him die but you know again that that was after a presumably long and fulfilling life so right um just sort of the tension there um and the idea that um another big theme that we talked about when we were discussing this episode on our podcast was um just the idea of nostalgia and that that right. whole the, the sort of conflicting emotions of you know you're sad but why are you sad you're sad because something happy has taken place in that happy thing is gone, but it still happens. So that doesn't right. take away the happiness of it, even though it makes you sad now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that right. kind of which is why sad is happy for deep people. Right. right, right, right. And that's why she likes old things because you know, I mean, she doesn't go into this depth of explanation. But why is she in this house? Well, she's probably imagining and trying to photograph the beauty that it once had, and you know that sort of um, that sort of idea. So. Uh, yeah, just that idea of, of nostalgia, I think, is, is big here, even though she doesn't actively participate in, like, those nostalgic moments, e- either with the house or with, you know, her friend or with Billy, but you kind of 
get that understanding, uh, you know, through the stories that, that they sort of reveal um, as they go along. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love that. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that, that stuff is great. Yeah, the, the, the fact that she likes old things and the way that that not only sort of, as I said, explains how everything gets started, but is also foreshadowing, as you say, of all the things that come. Just, just, uh, just love that element uh, of the story. Well, we should probably uh, let people go. We've kept people for quite a while, as usual. I've run on to a uh, to a, a quite a responsible length. Um, thanks for thanks for joining me. Before we go, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your podcast so they can know where to where to find you guys and what you guys are doing? Sure. Um, we so our podcast is called Cat and Kurt's TV Review. We actually um, do a weekly. Uh, review of two episodes. One is a Doctor Who episode, um, and the other is an episode of either Angel or Buffy. We're actually um, co- you know, watching them co-currently for a number of years. They were on air together. Um, we started with Buffy, did like the first three seasons, and then when Angel became the spinoff, um, we started doing them alternating weeks. So, um, as Kat mentioned, we are going very slowly <laughs> because, like, you know, between the two shows, I mean, there's many, many hours of watching and talking about it um but yeah you can find that um it's kctvreview at uh, wordpress.com and uh again it's a weekly episode and i actually just had one question because last time we talked um uh, which was last year uh, uh in this thing you i think had just finished season one of doctor who i was like four episodes i think into season two yeah, yeah. and and you were having some uh you, you weren't quite sure yet about tenant and mm-hmm. and you know him playing the doctor. Uh, it, it seems you've become more comfortable um, yes, with yes. that. But you said you really like Matt Smith. I do. So uh, any quickly, if you can, <laughs> any thoughts on sort of the different um, you know ways that 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 those uh, actors have have sort of panned out for you? And I was surprised at how much I liked Matt Smith. I mean, I did. I mean, I'm sure my experience, you know, the experience I'm about to describe is probably way more typical than it is unusual. But I had just gotten used to David Tennant and come to really enjoy him in season four. And then all of a sudden it's somebody with completely different and with quite a different face. And, um, and it was, it was, it was again another shock and another jolt. But I actually, I took to Matt Smith. I mean, part of the thing is, the first episode with Matt Smith was completely brilliant. I loved the okay. first Amelia Pond episode, the Fish Fingers and, and, and Custard episode. Um, so good, so interesting, so well done. Um, that I was, I was, so I was, I was hooked by Matt Smith very, very early on. I think I also must be, I, I, I've, I've been trying to place it and I haven't been able to place it with any specificity. <clears throat> At some point, in my earlier life, presumably more or less contemporary. I've, I've never seen the modern show live on TV. Like I've never, I've never actually watched one of the episodes live. I've watched them all on Netflix, but um, I must have seen some image on the internet or somewhere of Matt Smith as Doctor. Because the first time Matt Smith was revealed with his bow tie on, 
it like it seemed fitting. Like I had this sense of like, oh yeah, that's what the doctor looks like, and I'm like, why should I think that that's what the doctor looked like? I must. So somehow, some some picture of Matt Smith as the doctor must have been residing in my subconscious and made that transition. I th- and I think that contributed to make it easier because. You know, the, one of the struggles I had with David Tennant was like, that's not what the doctor looks like. Cause I had Christopher <laughs> Eccleston in my head. That, like, that's the doctor. And, uh, and again, as a noob, that was my first ever regeneration, right? So I was, I was, you know, I wasn't really like emotionally prepared for what was going to happen there. And, um, but, um, but the other thing is I, you know, I really have in, I really enjoyed Matt Smith's characterization. And I don't know, Kat, I don't know if I don't know if you know the answer to this. One question that I had have had while watching all of them has been, do you know how much input, I guess, the actors to what extent can the actors determine sort of where they take the character? Do you see what I mean? Like I mean, Capaldi, for instance, is like very, the Doctor is very different with Capaldi than he was. I mean, just way, way different. Matt Smith and, and David Tennant, I think that was another thing, is that in his in the way that he acts, and particularly in, in David Tennant's very first episode, the Christmas episode, where he gets his hand cut off, um, he uh, uh, he's so much flightier than Christopher Eccleston mm-hmm. was. You know, and that bothered me. It was one of the things that I was kind of annoyed by originally by by David sure. Tennant. It's like I loved Christopher Eccleston and I and I still love Christopher Eccleston's grin, right? You know, when uh when when like when somebody says something like it's going to be dangerous, right? And he gets that huge grin on his face, like, oh yes, it sure is going to be dangerous, isn't it? Like that grin that he pulls is fantastic. But David Tennant was like capering, you know? And I'm like, what, the doctor doesn't caper, you know? And, and, uh, but anyway, but I, I, I've had time to get adjusted to a capering doctor. And so Matt Smith does a fair bit of capering and I was fine with yes. the capering by that point. But right. Capaldi does not caper. Um, Capaldi is like the polar opposite of capering. So again, my question is, to to what extent is that, do you know, to what extent that's dictated and to what extent the the actors can, like, caper if they want to? Like, you know. Um, so, I mean, this is my sense from reading that I've done and interviews I've watched. Obviously, I'm not uh, an authority on this, but my kind of idea of it is that I've heard Stephen Moffat and some of the writers say things like, to the effect that, according to them, they write the Doctor all the same. That it's they're all the same guy, they okay. say the same things, and it's largely, um, you know, the input of the actor. But, I mean, there's some... That's kind of tough, because I think when they cast somebody, they know... You know, if it's someone like Peter Capaldi, he's done a ton of work. You know what Peter Capaldi is like, the kinds of roles he's played, you know, the types of things he's good at. So I think they probably can't help but write to that. (laughs) You know, so Capaldi's famous for playing, you know, a very foul-mouthed spin doctor on this kind of British political comedy. So, you know, you kind of know the kind of guy you're getting when you cast somebody like that. So... He doesn't necessarily say anything all that different from what the other doctors say, but there's still a kind of, okay, we're going in a certain direction. Um, And then just the idea of, especially I think as doctors are there over multiple seasons, 
Um, I think this may be different from Christopher Eccleston, who only had one year, but mm-hmm. with Tennant and Smith and the others, you know, once the writers see some episodes, they'll start to write to that. So a lot of times, you know, part of maybe getting more used to Tennant is maybe some of it is him adjusting his style, but maybe some of it is the writers saying, oh, okay, you know, if we kind of, you know, shadow in this direction, that sort of suits his doctor in a way that, you know. And, like, so they'll talk about, um, you know, Girl in the Fireplace was apparently written because Stephen Moffat didn't know what David Tennant would be like. He sort of wrote it for Christopher Eccleston. And, you know, and it's not until he sees him play it that then he goes, okay, so the Tennant doctor does stuff like this. So I think there's, that's a back and forth between the actor and the writer with sort of, and I think, you know, I think Matt Smith was lucky in that he had an awesome first episode that, you know, they really would have had to really try hard to not do it well. You know, a lot of times I think it takes the doctors several episodes or even a season to really find the voice. Um, And sometimes, so then season two or season three can come across a lot more confident in terms of the characterization. So... I think that's a kind of evolving back and forth. But all at the same time, you, you have the writers saying, well, he's the same, we write him the same, and it's up to the actor to sort of, here's the words, do with that what you will. So That would be a fun kind of exercise, actually, to, to sort of, you know, I, I can imagine, like, re-watching several seasons of Matt Smith, say, right? And then immediately going and reading a script from a Capaldi episode... And picturing it, you know, so having Matt Smith in my eyes and in my ears, right, and imagining Matt Smith doing these lines and seeing how that would work and, 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 you know, sort of if that would work. And, you know, it's, it would be, it would be an interesting, and, but of course I'd have to do it without rewatching the Capaldi one, so I wouldn't have him in my head. I've only seen those once, so I could probably do it, right? Um, but, but, but yeah, it, it's, it is, uh, there, there were times, uh, in those episodes where he would say something really grumpy, and I would start to kind of grumble to myself and be like, oh, gosh, Matt Smith would never have said that to Clara. <laughs> um, but but then I'm like, you know, but but there were a couple times where I was thinking, no, he might have said that to Clara, but he never would have said it like that, right? I mean, it right. just it wouldn't have sounded at all like that. Um, right. Well, and, and some people are pointing out some good things. Tripp says um, certainly the actors have a big part in how the doctors look, that there's always – that's always – Usually the writers don't have much to do with that at all. That's a actor-costume-director process. You know, in fact, I think Moffat told Matt Smith under no circumstances would he be wearing a bow tie. And, you know, and you can see how that went. So, um, yeah, and, and Tennant, you know, the first thing he said when he got the part was, can I have a really long coat? So, you know, they're kind of, the way that they look and kind of come across is very you know, significant. Um, and then Neil also points out that the regeneration episodes by design are always a bit flighty, you know, that, and that's something that is kind of, again, in retrospect can make more sense that, you know, the Christmas invasion is not necessarily typical of the 10th doctor that he's, he's out of it. He just regenerated. Um, and you know, same thing with most of the others. Um, so you have to kind of give them a little leeway to sort of, figure themselves out when they're brand new. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was, I was definitely kind of for that reason, 
Especially since the whole, one of the premises of that first Tenet episode was that he wasn't himself, right? He was like unconscious for half the time. And, and I, so I was trying not to rush to judgment about the capering, you know, in the first episode. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, Curtis, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say too, uh, you know, at this point with the, with the new Who series, you have basically, you know, fanboys or fan people of, right. you know, classic Doctor Who. So to some extent, um, for, at least for the doctors acting, there's probably a certain amount of mimicry of their favorite doctors as well going on. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, it's you know just as you sort of have maybe an idea of who you think of when you think of as your doctor, they all do too. And so that's you know some of what they're presenting, at least you know from acting um, standpoint, is is along those lines, and probably costuming as well. I don't know Classic Who well enough to, like, be able to draw those conclusions. I don't know it at all. (laughs) So, um... Me neither, really. But but I would be surprised, especially, I mean, I know David Tennant, we talked a lot about, you know, the fact that, you know, he he went on to become a family of a former doctor, and sort of the clash, and um, of, in, in real life, I mean, not yeah. in the story, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so you know, there's influences even beyond um, just them, sort of. Well, yeah, and, and he and Capaldi both grew up watching the show as sort of fanboys as well. So, you know, whereas Matt Smith is kind of this child of the '80s who grew up when the show was off, and so, you know, he sort of. Uh, saw an episode of the second Doctor and really loved that actor and drew on that. But he's not necessarily bringing a, a weight of references to the right. series. He's maybe seen, you know, the the stray episode here or there. Whereas with Tennant and Capaldi, you're getting, you know, lifetimes of references. You know that they're so they're kind of they have Tom Baker and you know John Pertwee in the back of their their minds. Um, you know, that they're sort of deliberately kind of looking to mimic, but also sort of tweak and evolve from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, so in the characterization, there's that also kind of make it old, but make it new at the same time, um, which also goes into it as well, I think. Yeah, I, I have to say, it's actually, I'm kind of... Um, the completionist in me really wishes that I could go back to season one of the old who and watch all of them in order like I did the new ones, you know, the completionist in me really wishes that I could do that. But I have to say the Tolkienist in me really sort of likes the idea that in seeing only the new show, I have this, you know, what There's Tolkien the would have, in the, yeah, the perception yeah. of depth, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, the old who is always a distant vista, which will remain, which will have the mystique of distance. Uh, and I, and I, I, I love that, you know, in the glimpses that we get, of course, in those few episodes, where we get those, those few and rather recurring visual images, uh, you know, and, and uh, which, because I've not seen it, so it means almost nothing to me. But it just, you know, the images of, like, that dude with the really long, colorful scarf and, all, you know, these other images yeah. that we see on screen occasionally. Um, but uh, but I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. So, well, uh, that's yeah. kind of One of the nice things about Blink, too, is it works on both those levels, that it works equally well for the fan and for, you know, I've used it as a first episode introduction to people. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it there's really... No choosing between the two; it works just fine either way. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And, and of course, there's the fact that you can't 
go back and watch all yeah. of them because some of them don't exist anymore. Right, yeah, many of them have uh, actually yeah. been lost. I've but heard that. Uh, yeah. on, on that note, um, we are going to somehow try to tackle that at some point, cool. we've decided. So um, yeah. it won't be with the level of depth that we do. Yeah, I think unless we're committing ourselves to the rest of our lives and beyond, perhaps, <laughs> right. um, which I'm not prepared to do, but <laughs> uh, maybe Kat is. But anyway, yeah. No, but I just, I, given that we had talked last time about sort of your um, discomfort with the regeneration, yes. I, I'm yeah. curious to see. And, and um, you know, with Matt Smith in particular, too, I, right about the time that he was announced to be the next doctor was when we were starting our podcast, I believe. Okay. Or, or at least, uh, no, Capaldi was coming up. Or, okay, so Smith had already started. But yeah. I, my point was going to be that, like, I similarly, I already kind of knew who he was and that he was going to be a doctor. So I had some very definite opinions of him, not based on anything, right. just based on media coverage and that sort of thing. Um, so that's definitely an interesting experience versus, you know, the previous, uh, you know, Eccleston and Tennant, who I had not known from any, from, and well, from Doctor Who anyway. So And it, it's right. funny that people kind of say, you know, you, you always are most in love with your first Doctor. and But that's a weird thing because in some ways, I mean, I never watched an episode until I started the beginning of New Who. So I guess Eccleston is my first Doctor. Right. But... I was first aware of the show when David Tennant was on. So, again, those were the images I was seeing. Was And I think the first clip I ever saw was the timey-wimey speech, you know, of him talking at me out of the screen. So, you know, much as he came after Eccleston, in some ways, I can't divorce that image in my head of this is what the Doctor looks like and this is sort of the, the realist incarnation in a way just because I saw it first. So it's funny how that kind of primes you for certain expectations and that you can't really divorce yourself from. So when he turns up, you know, it's no surprise. Of course, that's what he looks like, and that's how he sounds. Right. Um, right. So. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, I'm, 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 I've now moved past irresponsible and how long I'm keeping everybody. But yeah, I want to thank again, uh, Kurt and Kat. I've posted the link um, to your podcast, to your webpage, uh, there in the chat for everybody who's here. Could you just repeat it one more time for the people listening at home? Uh, yep, it's kctvreview.wordpress.com. Awesome, awesome, very good. Well, thanks, uh, thanks, guys. We'll have to we'll have to check in with you guys again. Uh, I uh, I'm suspect that I may watch. Um, uh, I may watch them again on Netflix. But also, uh, Kurt, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I've just come to the end of the, I mean, it's only been like a week since I finished season eight, uh, on Netflix. And I have to admit, I've been sort of sitting here th- looking like the world of Netflix is like a barren wilderland with tumbleweeds rolling around in it now that I finished Doctor Who. Um, but I'm thinking it's probably it's probably time for Buffy. So I, I may be in touch, Kurt, for some advice uh, as I uh, as I go back and do the Joss Whedon thing now. So there we go. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Excellent. All but right. Make sure when you get to season four, you start inner yeah i'm definitely gonna need guidance so for chronological order is okay so the first three of buffy are independent and Mm -hmm. it's at season four that it shifts and then yeah yeah, and then you just do every other one and they for 
a couple seasons, they are they actually aired back to back. So you would get like an episode of Buffy followed immediately by an episode of Angel, and there's some storyline crossover okay. stuff going on. So it's it's been fun. All right, for uh, very good for the completionist. It's important. Well, yeah, that's why I want to make sure I know when to when to do. That. All right, all right. So now I know when to when to get in touch to make sure I have my playlist correct. So <laughs> very good. All right. Well, thanks everybody, and we'll see you guys around. So don't, we've got uh, film, film, and uh, the Griffith stream in the morning tomorrow, and then don't forget Halloween Day. We're having our big webathon with lots and lots of stuff going on. So uh, uh, and don't forget to read the Father Christmas letters between now and then too. Thanks everybody. Good night now.